when mutant kids die. Yeah. Emma is shattered. Right. Magneto is shattered. Right. And Charles can find a way to move on. Charles is like, which Guthrie was that? X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today for the season one finale of Cerebro, episode 50, is Pulitzer Prize winning national security reporter Spencer Ackerman, a returning guest making his third appearance on the podcast. He was most recently at the Daily Beast, but has gone independent and is publishing a Substack newsletter called The Forever War. His new book, Reign of Terror, is available now. It tracks the pathway from the reaction to 9-11 to the rise of the Trumpist movement in the Republican Party and in our wider culture. It has been glowingly reviewed just about anywhere that a book can be reviewed, including in the New York Times. If you are at all interested in national security, in the rise of far-right nationalism, or in the catastrophic war on terror that we are now seeing even more ramifications of in the news right now. It's a killer read and Spencer is a genius. So you should pick it up. Just my opinion. Spencer, how are you today? Connor, I am so honored to be here. It's the season one finale of Cerebro. It has been a wild last couple of weeks. The reviews of the book that mean the most to me are Discord. And I wish... I had more time lately to spend there, but I will hopefully be back uh, very, very soon. And despite all of the stuff that you have to do when you have a book out, I have a gigantic notes file for our discussion today that I'm very excited to get. Well, that's thrilling to me. I love your comprehensive notes always. I... Just want to do a bit of business at first for the listeners who may now be panicking. What's the season one finale? What does that mean? So here's the gist, everybody. September 1st, 2021 is the one year anniversary of Cerebro. This is episode 50, meaning that in 52 weeks, I put out 50 episodes, which is a lot of content, (laughs) especially given how long this podcast tends to be and how much editing is required, which I do entirely on my own. So here's what's going to happen because I don't want you to panic. This is good. This is a good thing. This is good news. I am taking a couple weeks off. September is going to be a little bit of a lull, but I just put out like four episodes, bang, 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 bang. So you have time to catch up. We will return at the end of September. Here is the only thing that's going to change. Season two is going to have ads because I have put out 50 episodes with no ads in them. I love my Zala gang so much. I appreciate the fact that I could provide that much content completely for free. These ads are going to make it possible for me to continue doing the podcast. I need to start seeing somebody from this because (laughs) otherwise the amount of labor I mean it's become a second job essentially and I don't mind that because I love doing it but I need to uh, have a second income stream from it the Patreon is really nice but is not quite 
there yet. So here's the gist. There's going to be two ads in every episode. They're going to bookend the Cerebro character file on either side of it. If you would like an ad-free version, you can sign up for the Patreon. Patrons will get an ad-free version of each episode the moment that they go live. And so for patrons, absolutely nothing will change. I don't think the ads will be super obtrusive because, again, they're going to bookend the character file. So it's just going to be like little commercial breaks before and after the character file. I appreciate your patience with some brief advertisements or your Patreon dollars up front. Mama's got to eat. That's all. It's nothing (laughs) to worry about. I will be recording in September for some releases in October. So here's a sneak peek of Cerebro Season 2. I am still taking questions for my episode on Cable with Michelle Gallipoli. Then I will be joined by Marvel writer Terry Blass to talk about Skin on Hello Espinosa from Generation X in advance of Marvel's Voices Comunidades. And then we will have a spooky October together in which we spotlight some women of the X franchise who have really been through hell. First, Sarah Century joins me as the first four-peat guest to sing the praises of Candy Southern, Warren's Lost Love, the most egregiously fridged woman in the X-Men franchise, a character I love and Sarah loves and we will convince you to love so that you can be as frustrated as we are because she died the year I was born. (laughs) Justice for Candy. Justice for Candy. Then returning guest Valentine Smith will join me to screech it out. All of our feelings on Teresa Cassidy, Terry Cassidy, Siren, a character who truly has gone through it, as you may have gleaned from the Jamie Madrox episode. That's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to have Valentine back on the pod. The Sage episode is a real favorite of mine. And then for Halloween, returning guest Alex Abad Santos will be joining me to pay the same homage to Celine that we did to Emma Frost and the ladies mastermind. At some point when she has time away from her wildly successful television series Shadow and Bone, Christina Strain will be joining me to talk about Jubilee. And I have some other really cool creator interviews lined up that I can't tell you about just yet, but they are very exciting. So... That is a little sneak peek of what's coming up on Cerebro. You can feel free to start sending in questions about all of those characters right now. And I am looking forward to getting season two rolling with all of you. Thank you for being here. I never imagined when I started this a year ago that it would be as successful or as fulfilling or as creatively wonderful to do as it has been. This has really changed my life, and that's because of all of you listening. So please continue to do so, even if there are some brief ads. And again, if you don't want ads, for $5 a month at the House of Zaladine tier at patreon.com slash you will get ad-free versions of every single episode in addition to two bonus episodes every month. We just did a Cerebro catch-up that caught you up on what's happened since each episode for all of the characters that I have covered. So that's a nice little bonus if you want... Also, I went through the Chris Claremont Paragon collection to talk about the brand new stories in that that are exclusive to it. Sarah Sentry and I talked about Darkhold, Pages from the Book of Sins, and Victoria Montesi, Marvel's first lesbian character, for like two hours. A lot of good stuff on the Patreon. Give it a look, maybe. If the spirit moves you, if you want some more dinosaur magic in your life, (laughs) join us. So with that business out of the way, 
Oh, actually, one thing, a correction. In the Madrox episode, I referred to Bishop's associates Malcolm and Randall, who came back with him from the future as Malcolm and Reese, which are the brothers from Malcolm in the Middle, which is not <laughs> the same character. So just a, a brief correction. Thank you to Karen Charm for pointing that out on Twitter. I was very embarrassed. Now, with all the business out of the way, I'll return to you, Spencer. Hey, what's up? You're raising your hand like you want to chat. Well, I, I just, you know, am so excited about what the future holds for the next several episodes of Cerebro. How can you not pay for this? I am myself a patron. Uh, I, I got to have those those extra Zalagang episodes. We love to see it. So, you know, if you can afford it, like, I mean, listen to what Connor just said is coming up. These are a murderer's row of guests. These are some epic conversations about these characters to be had you really got to pay for all of this i don't mind an ad read people you know this is work people have to be compensated for their work um i am very curious um about like an ad read that's like you know banshee selling you a casper mattress they're gonna be fun i'm thinking yeah. like honestly rogue may become a spokeswoman for many products on this show i think Oh, I mean, we gotta have Zaladane for the Casper mattress. She who sleeps. She who sleeps. We're gonna see. Um, <laughs> we're gonna see who who signs up. Anchor. That's my podcast distribution service. Thank you, Anchor. They are going to connect me with some sponsors over the next. That's part of why I'm taking a couple weeks off. Is I'm like organizing all of that stuff. So it's gonna be funny. But first, we have this episode to do, which I'm excited about. We put this on the schedule. Back in like February, I want to say. Yeah, it's been it's a long been time. It's been a while because basically I was like, do you want to come back to do Xavier? And you were like, of course I want to come back to do Xavier. And I said, okay, why don't we do that as episode 50? And you were like, love that. Wait, my book is coming out. When is episode 50? And I was like, literally like the week your book comes out. <laughs> it's fine. We'll make it work. It'll be fine. And it seems like it's fine. I'm excited to be part of the Reign of Terror press tour. It's also nice to see your face again. It's been a little Definitely. bit. I last saw Spencer, actually, this is a cute story for the listeners. I last saw Spencer toward the end of July when he attended my bar mitzvah. It was an honor. I had a great time. It filled my heart with joy. It was cute. I mean, and I we met through this podcast. We sure did. And the Magneto episode, which just cracked 10,000 listens recently. It's one of the top three most popular episodes of the show. I think that it's a really high watershed moment for the podcast and it was nice to go from all of the Jewish feelings we had in that recording together to you being there as I finally became a man 20 years late so I uh, appreciated you coming it was a lot of fun I am actually I thought you would get a kick out of this my mom's friend Amy I'm showing him a shirt on. oh that's gorgeous look at that so the shirt I'm wearing it's a blue it's like a navy blue or I guess I don't know slate blue gray or whatever you want to call it it has a rainbow flag on it with a mag and david in the middle it's like now my concern is it looks kind of like gay israel i don't think it does you don't think it does because i, I was like can does. i wear this outside or are people gonna think i'm like an aggressive gay zionist i don't know we'll no see. definitely <laughs> not no, no no that's 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 also very much like you know i want to say like your insignia on your superhero costume right I like it. I got a little bag at the house. I was like, what is this? Oh, it's from Amy. Oh, okay. This is cute. So shout out to Amy Perlman, friend of the pod. 
And thank you again, Spencer, for being on the podcast. You're joining Elite Company as a three-peat guest. I, I'm very aware. So far, it's just you, Teeny Howard, and Sarah Century. And so. those are some of the people responsible for not just my favorite episodes, but my favorite comics. I'm just absolutely thrilled. It's great to be here like Jadakiss on John Blaze remix. <laughs> so. Well, we are here today to talk about Charles Francis Xavier, probably pronounced Xavier. But, but who cares? No, it's not. It's Xavier. Yeah, it's Xavier because they're the X-Men and it's enough already, right? My dad always says Xavier, though, and I love that for him. I noticed when I met him at your bar mitzvah. Yeah, you were like the man, the myth, the legend. He also weirdly calls issues of comic books episodes, but episodes of my podcast, he keeps calling them issues. Love that. So I'm like, why is this backwards in your head? I don't know. He's Listen, he's a very intelligent man. He was a lawyer for 40 years, but for some reason, the wires are crossed up there sometimes. Anyway, so yes, Professor Xavier, leader of the X-Men, Professor X, all of that, jazz, onslaught, <laughs> briefly, Sometimes just X when he's feeling sassy and hanging out in Phantom X's body. Don't worry about it. We'll get there. I'd love to just sort of, for starters, get your general take on the character, why you wanted to talk about the character, why you were excited to talk about the character, because it was something you said you wanted to do basically the moment we finished recording the Magneto episode. So listeners of the Magneto episode will know my feelings on Magneto and who essentially the hero of the X-Men franchise is. Charles Xavier is someone through whom we get, not always intentionally, but throughout his character history, the dominant conception of mutant power, what mutant power is not, what the correct and ethical uses of mutant power is and what mutant relationships with the outside world ought to be. All of that, from the very start of the X-Men franchise, are the lessons that we, the reader, receive. The ethics of the book derive from Charles Xavier. So we get in what probably was not intentionally done but nevertheless has evolved as the X-Men have evolved, a really amazing development in literature, which is the creation of an ordered ethical universe from an exceptionally unreliable narrator and from someone who, as we delve further into the stories, reveals himself to be a manipulator who is constantly on the fulcrum between, uh, for lack of a better term, hero and villain, good and evil, in distinct ways, but nevertheless ways reminiscent of how Magneto is, and reminiscent of how, and I want to introduce this character as kind of a third antipode to Magneto and Xavier, because we don't often talk about her that way, but in the way Callisto is. Sneak peek! Guess what Spencer's fourth episode at some point is going to be? Because <laughs> he keeps bringing this up every time, every time. Because my third prong of that triangle is always Emma, mm -hmm. which is why I'm really interested in what Hickman's going to do in Inferno, because it seems like he's setting up that triumvirate, if you look at the promos, as sort of the center of the event. 
but I love this read, and you should go into it more, because I think Callisto, as a political leader, is something that has been underestimated. I would love to see her on the Quiet Council at some point, if such a thing continues to exist. I'd love to see her operating in government in whatever the new government may be after Inferno. That's right. And now that we know for certain that Callisto is on Krakoa, her mm-hmm. rightful place is on whatever governing structure of the council. You're, you're, you're right. I forgot that we should have had Emma in there. And also we should have Apoca- we should also have Apocalypse as well. We should. I just love your commitment to the politics of the Morlocks and to Callisto's whole deal. It's crucial. They're also the big Mutant Liberation Front stand, which I always appreciate because those characters, those poor guys, they just never get their due because they keep getting led by psychopaths who are lying to them about caring about mutants, which is like not an ideal situation, I guess. But their hearts are kind of in the right place. Yeah. Callisto is someone we can see in, in very sharp contrast to Professor X, but let's kind of walk up there. Although this doesn't happen so early in Professor X's character history, one of, I think, the the touchstone moments for the character that allows him, in his own words, to kind of lay out what he's about, particularly after he's been a kind of lived-in character for, at this point, 30 years, um, is the speech he gives um, in the first issue of Executioner's Song um, in Uncanny 294. Um, And I think it's just important, I'm sure I'll be redundant a bit with the character file, to just read a little bit of this, because this is how you can kind of start to see the contrast. Yeah, go for it. So he starts out going, I can't do voices like Connor, freak, flat scan, dead end, gene joke, mutie, words, powerful words meant to distance, to demean, to destroy the havens of self-respect we each carry and nurture within us. Just as surely as they did to rend the centuries-old tapestry we, as a race, have agreed to call civilization. And there's more like that. So this is a very eloquent exposition of a liberal assimilationism that starts from the perspective, as we've talked about in both the Beast and the Magneto episodes, and you've talked about across so many characters, a position that mutants ought to accept minority status, ought to operate in a world that they don't control, that doesn't represent them, but that could, and that the appropriate purpose of mutant kind in such a circumstance is to solve problems for the majority to show that essentially there's nothing to fear. And if there's nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. What's important about the way Professor X during this concert that Lila Cheney is playing that's like a, a a statement for diversity is that the language that he uses to express all this is both important and it's very revealing. Xavier is talking about words when he needs to be talking about structures and how those words are downstream from those structures. He's acting like racism is about table manners and not about throttling who gets to access freedom, wealth, and power And who has to answer to those who can access freedom, wealth, and power? And this is how you can see the contrast with both Magneto and Callisto. Magneto confronts those structures to break them. Callisto enables people to flee the structures. Charles is providing refuge to prepare mutants to navigate the structures. Mm. 
as a political project, I think that will always be found wanting. Mm-hmm. That's always going to be tested. But the complication that really makes Charles Xavier, who's not a good man, a great man in the historical sense, is that Charles, in a way that Magneto certainly does not, in a way Callisto, however, does, in a way that Emma does, in a way that kind of Apocalypse does, Charles really does build mutant community. Mm -hmm. He's aiming past it. He's using the refuge as kind of a temporary... It's like a halfway house. Exactly. Assimilation, yeah. Yes, well said. In order to get you ready as a mutant to move in in a human world, um, he's got that tragic respectability politics always about them. Um, And that's a politics that I, in a variety of different contexts, but I don't want to speak for other people's experiences that I don't share and other people's burdens that I don't have to bear... But a politics that seems like it has very little chance of success in a world that ought to emphasize solidarity and justice and freedom seen in that kind of triumvirate relationship. The thing is, is that because Charles gathers all of these mutants together, they get to interpret his vision kind of away from his vision, his dream not all of those who call themselves X-Men really practice his dream. And that's kind of, I think, the best that can be said about it, that Charles is an incubator of mutant liberation, even though all throughout his character history, I would contend, and I'll, I'll go into some specific examples, he inhibits and restricts mutant liberation. I would agree. I think what's most interesting about Charles is that I do think he's essential to beginning the project because I think that you need to at least be in dialogue with the oppressor to some extent, right? Whereas Eric has no interest in any kind of dialogue. So if it had just been the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants by themselves and no one else was politicking at all, I think that the experiment probably would have died before it could begin, right? The mutant experiment, the idea of this being an enduring species of people, subspecies, subculture. You need Charles at the moment he arises, but then I would agree that from every step beyond X-Men 1, he is holding them back at every turn, which is why both the characters and the mutant metaphor only really soar to new heights when Charles is removed from the narrative. First, when he dies at the hands of Grotesque the Subhuman in the 60s mm-hmm. run, which is eventually retconned into having been an imposter, which we'll get into in the character file. But then Claremont sends him to space, like, multiple times. A lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's even... An interesting beat in the middle where he gets cloned into a new body because of the brood, we'll get there, and regains the ability to walk and now feels he should be in the field with the X-Men. And there's a lot of friction with Storm, who's leading the X-Men, because she's like, Professor, I'd appreciate if you would let me lead the X-Men. Yeah. And then when she gets depowered and leaves the team for a little while to deal The thing that he realizes is that actually he has terrible field leadership instincts and he pulls back. In that moment, it's like 
even he gets the moment of, oh, Professor Xavier is not the right person for this job, but he's Professor Xavier, realizing it. It's a remarkable moment of self-awareness from him, which we don't usually get outside of, I would say, the Carrie run on Legacy. But after that, he's even less involved, and then Claremont fully puts him on a bus to space and traps him there with the Star Jammers for, like, the rest of the 80s. Let's stick with Storm for one second, because this is illustrative. Charles Xavier tells Storm she's not a goddess and thinks that's for her own good. Right. Like, I'm disabusing you of these pagan ideas that you have lost yourself in. I'm bringing you to civilization. It's very much that. This is the literal first time we ever see Storm and the first time that Storm and Charles Xavier ever interact. He comes into her domain, tells her she's deluding herself She's not a god, but as he puts it, he can give her purpose. You are no goddess, Aurora. You are a mutant and you have responsibilities. Come with me, child. Taste the world outside. To be fair, he does call them all child. I don't think that one's racial. He does get weirdly racial with Thunderbird like two pages yes, later. Yes, he though. calls so, Thunderbird a coward. He tries to basically, I mean. It's, well, he says, I, I, perhaps the Apache are all cowards. Yeah, and, it was you know, yeah. fucking wild. Yeah. Now, this is, to be fair, a very weird issue for Charles Xavier. Giant size <laughs> X-Men. Yes. Because it's the only time Len Wein writes the character. And his voice is a lot more condescending than it will be under Claremont, but pretty in keeping with the guy from the 60s. So I don't think Len Wein had him out of character. It's just interesting how dramatically I think the character shifts just one issue later. Not to suggest <laughs> that he doesn't have some of these traits, but the way he goes around collecting them all like Pokemon because they're an international team, it has like almost an imperialist quality to it, right? Yes. Which is interesting. What I think is helpful with that scene, the scene between him and Storm, which I agree is kind of wild, is that Claremont then retcons a backstory between them that is less insane. Because like if he knows <laughs> this woman, like if he's met her before, this is not as crazy a thing to say to her. So there's the backstory introduced between them when she's a child. The first mutants he ever meets besides himself are Amal Farouk and Aurora, which I think is interesting. She runs off, though, because she's like a child pickpocket and they, you know, it's not it's not a prolonged interaction. He scares her because he realizes what she's doing because he's telepathic. They meet again in X-Men The Hidden Years by John Byrne, but that arc is not great. So don't worry about it. Point is... I do think that there is an attempt made like he calls her child because the last time he really saw her, she was literally a child. And he's trying to say, like, I remember the girl you were. You've let these people's awe at your power get to your head, but you should be using these powers to help the whole world. Now, the question there is, what makes the people of the Serengeti who she's helping yes. less worthy of her gift than the rest of the world, meaning, by the way, New York, which is where all when the you think are. about it, <laughs> when you think about it, if Charles believes what he says, Aurora is already enacting his dream. Right. Aurora is using her mutant gifts to benefit like all the mankind. humans around her. And no, like Charles, I, I, you know, valiant effort from Claremont. You love to see that kind of cleanup. It doesn't fix it. I'm just saying, I yeah. think there was an attempt made, but it's still weird, particularly now 
after planet size when we've seen like the true raw power of the Omega mutant, right? Yeah, she is a fucking god. Right. So there's that. Like even leaving out all the Black Panther Hadari Yao stuff because frankly, I don't like it. Storm fans don't come at me. I just prefer when she's not too magical. I like that she has some magical stuff in her backstory. I like that that's an element of the character, but I don't like when she's a literal goddess because I think it's less interesting. I think it's more interesting ontologically when we say, what is a god? And as Magneto says, you have new gods now. And so what Xavier did is not just tell her she's not a goddess when arguably she is, whether or not she was born from a divine godhead. He also is taking away the most profound natural resource that East Africa has in this universe. Like, because Wakanda's closed off, right? Yeah. So these particular tribal groups that are not in the cities and are living a more traditional way of life, the most profound thing that they have that is a technological marvel from the gods is this woman. And Charles comes and tells her, actually, America needs your help and takes her away. Yeah. The others he rescues. Her, he literally is just like, hmm, I need, yeah, it's literally like archaeological theft. Like, he's like, I found something here and I'm going to bring it home with me. And, you know, valiant effort by Claremont to try and fix that. But I guess what I'm getting at is I think Len Wein got something about the character right. Yeah, it certainly has dividends later. Absolutely. Like Magneto would have said to Aurora, Yes, you are a god, and there's a place for you in my pantheon. Yes. Who else accepts Aurora's kind of ethereal sovereignty? Callisto. Yup. Callisto recognizes that by Callisto's own rules, Storm dominates her. Storm will, of course, this isn't a Storm episode, Storm, of course, will ultimately have to, you know, pay for that choice kind of tragically when it comes time for the mutant massacre. Right. But nevertheless, through the interaction with Storm on the Serengeti, Charles shows you really what he's about. He shows you that sort of manipulation. He shows you that sort of solipsism that masquerades as being for the good of all mankind, very broadly defined. And he shows you that ultimately... His will is going to dominate. And that is, you know, you mentioned Charles being necessary at some stages to go like full, to be like Marxist historian about it. We can say that Xavier is dialectically necessary. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. In in, in order to kind of progress um, and mutant kind, you know, on its own, Storm, I think, probably through the Claremont run, foremost among them, recognizes that in many ways they don't live Xavier's stated dream and the the dream they do in fact live requires many different adjustments methods changes in thinking and to me that is what the Australia era Mm -hmm. is about is about kind of surpassing like breaking from the seed pod of Xavierism and seeing what results and of course continuing with that metaphor Krakoa being the greatest of all possible manifestations of how this dialectic develops. But at the same time, what we also have to recognize is that that same Charles Xavier will say to someone like Nightcrawler, who is fleeing a pogrom, Nightcrawler says in this absolutely tragic word bubble, can you help me to be normal? Mm -hmm. And Charles in that moment has the presence of mind and the empathy to say, after tonight's misfortune, Kurt, would you truly want to be? Yes. 
And that's also Charles Xavier. Which is an ethos that Aurora most famously expresses in the 90s when someone asks her, don't you ever want to be normal? And she looks at them and says, no, never, not once. And like you said, this is not a Storm episode, but honestly, I think that every episode should a little bit be a Storm (laughs) episode. I also think that it's impossible to talk about Xavier without talking about Storm. It's more obvious to people to talk about Cyclops because they have a father-son relationship in a way that he and Aurora never really have a father-daughter relationship. Or Gene, or Beast, or Magneto. Yeah, like all of those characters have a familial relationship with him that I don't think Aurora ever really developed. She sees him as a respected teacher, essentially. You know, I got in a little bit of hot water in an early episode for referring very casually to Aurora and Scott and Jean as soldiers for Xavier's dream who are loyal. And I said soldiers for Xavier. and People were like, they object to Xavier all the time. And I clarified in a later episode, what I meant was not Xavier the man. I meant that Xavierism as a philosophy is something that those three characters really do tend to fall in line with, except that Claremont, over the course of his run, pushes Aurora away from it. You know, I've said many times on this podcast, Storm loses her spark in the 90s post Claremont. She starts to fade into the background to the point where it's very easy in the aughts to marry her off to Black Panther and ship her off to the Avengers for a while, which is crazy because she was the main character of Claremont's X-Men for a very long time. The book was about her and Kitty and Wolverine. Those were the three main characters. I think that the biggest reason that that happens in the 90s is because... Apart from one really memorable scene that I love where Charles has her steal something from the government, some schematics and whatnot, and she's just like, I did this thing for you, but never ask me to do that again. Mm. I am not a thief. And it's calling back to when they first met. He still thinks that she's child, that she's the finest pickpocket in Cairo and that he can ask her to do. And she's like, this was demeaning and I'm not going to do it again. That scene's great. Otherwise, though, I think 90s Storm leading the gold team in Uncanny X-Men is not as dynamic a figure in terms of questioning his orthodoxy. She becomes much more like Scott, and I just think it's a less interesting place to have the character. When Claremont comes back, it's interesting because Storm basically turns her X-Men team into kind of Interpol. Like, they become cops. Yeah. The XSE. And it's, here's the thing, the XSE in Bishop's Future... Enforcers. ...is the Xavier Security Enforcers. In Storm's version, it's the Extreme Sanctions Executive. Because when she left the mansion, she broke ties with Charles, which is interesting. She said to him, we don't trust you anymore. Onslaught, yada, yada, all of this. I don't trust you with Destiny's Diaries. But more profoundly... And I think this is interesting because it's not explicit on the page because this happened during the six-month gap. Storm now knows what happened to Tessa. Right. And I think that she's disgusted by it. You think about that and it's kind of like, all right, I'm Aurora. I am the woman who, when I was 25, Xavier came to my temple, called me child, and took me from my home because he knew what was best for me. And at the same time, a girl younger than me, he had sent yes. to the to Hellfire Club slave. to be a sex slave so he could gather intelligence. What does that mean? Who is this person? You know, I think that, because it wasn't Onslaught that made her break with him. She uses that as the explanation when she does it. 
But it's very clear to me that Sage is the straw that broke the camel's back there. And I bring it up now because I think it's one of the worst things Charles has ever done. And it's not really something that is going into on the page. But it is Claremont who establishes it and retroactively establishes it to have been the case all along and planted seeds about it early on with Tessa throughout the 80s. So it's just an interesting... It's interesting to me that Storm goes more toward a centrist assimilation position in that period, that extreme X-Men period, but does it while making a formal break from Xavier as a person? So some of this, I think, can be read as downstream of the basic conceit of the book, which is that the ethical universe we are presented is mediated by Xavier. Yes. Xavier's politics define the left and right limits of respectability for what an X-Man is, for what a hero is, for how mutants ought to behave, like we said at the top of the episode. And the great thing about seeing all of these writers and all of these artists over the course of so many years give their interpretations of that is the way that they strain against, subvert, or otherwise build on what that dream is. But always that perspective is the foundation that's that's what's ordering what we see and like then you get ways ultimately to interrogate it based on the way xavier presents himself and there are some key moments that i go to as touchstones for this one of them is clearly drawn by john ramita jr on one of the 90s returns to the character that he has but i'm a fool and didn't jot down in my notes file where i took this panel from but trust me this is there (laughs) this is xavier stating most of these children have been in fights of one sort or another already i'm just giving them the skills they need to survive and perhaps to protect others of their kind now first of all that's an evolution of charles's original vision and we should acknowledge that but second of all Wow, so much to just pin Charles to the wall on for that, because we so rarely see the X-Men break mutants out of vivisection camps and so on and so forth. Usually it's Magneto who does that, or later on, it's Frenzy who does that. Mm -hmm. Xavier gives refuge primarily to the respectable. Refuge for those who are not respectable, which most often means cannot pass and are not interested in passing, is why there's a Callisto. That's why there's a Morlocks. That's the function of the Morlocks and putting the Morlocks in this absolutely abject but also rejectionist position where they have absolutely no access to wealth and seek none. They seek instead to be on the outside of that and their interactions will come with the outside world as necessary. And that's why the Morlocks have to die, right? Structurally, in the story. Because once they exist, it's such a profound challenge to Xavierism and the concept of the X-Men that it's almost like the center cannot hold. Like that's You almost right. have to take those characters out of the narrative. It shames Xavierism too deeply and exposes it too thoroughly. Right, so it's twofold. There's that aspect of it, and then there's also the fact of if all of these visible mutants exist and are homeless and are in the tunnels... It makes all of the human characters, like the Avengers, for instance, the Fantastic Mm -hmm. Four, look that much worse for their inaction on this issue. So again, I think there was just sort of an editorial reason to get rid of those characters of that society. And it's the exact same editorial reason, I believe, that immediately after the Morrison run, 
they do the decimation and get rid of all the undesirable mutant characters who aren't people that we want to have in a superhero story. In particular, Mutant Town, which is the evolution under Morrison of the Morlock concept, which is basically people who would have been Morlocks back in the day now going, actually, fuck you. We're going to live in Alphabet City and we're going to walk around here in our own neighborhood. And if you have a problem with it, you can go uptown. Or we can fuck you up either way. Or we'll kick the shit out of you because this is our home. Right. Up to you. That establishment of like a mutant ghetto or a mutant cultural enclave in New York City was a very, very cool thing that Morrison did that lots of other writers then picked up and ran with. District X is a weird, fascinating book. As soon as editorial, I think, or corporate, or whoever it was who made the big decision, but Casada is usually credited with coming up with the idea for the decimation, it's twofold. One is, obviously, there were rights issues going on with the X-Men. So, But from a story perspective... Mutant Town and the existence of Mutant Town, much like the Morlocks, presents a problem both for Xavierism and for the rest of the Marvel Universe ethically. Because, again, these people are very clearly a minority under threat, under constant abuse, facing constant violence. That makes it much more realistic because, oh, hey, like our government is constantly shamed by, for example, the way that black people are subject to constant violence and abuse. So I think it's a smart way to go. I think that it makes sense if you want this to be a real minority experience, that this has to be a real subculture that exists in the world that is treated a certain way by people. And in many ways, in myriad different ways, there's people who are violent, there's people who are hateful, there's also people who are fetishistic. There's lots of interesting stuff that happens there. There's cultural appropriation of mutantdom through the obsession with Jumbo Carnation, which eventually leads to Janet Van Dyne's mutant-inspired fashion line, which is one of the funniest. The The thing that's so weird about it is Remender clearly agrees with her. Oh, yeah. But mm. it's such a great idea. Like, right. It, subver- it, like, it subverts itself immediately. Right. It calls attention to the appropriation. The greatest indictment of Janet Van Dyne literally codenamed The Wasp, who is a character yep. I love. It's but fantastic. famously out of touch. She's The Wasp. That's it's the joke. It's such a perfect entendre. That's the joke. The fact that she's like, look, Alex, I made a mutant-inspired fashion line, which will inspire people to think about mutants as people and, and humans just like them, except that she's, like, making accessories that look like Scott's visor and things like that. It's like saying, it's my disability-inspired fashion line, and you're having people use, like, fashion crutches. It's, like, so obviously tacky if you apply it to any actual minority that it's just, like... Janet, what the fuck are you doing? But unfortunately, though, it's because the position of Uncanny Avengers overall seems to be that mutants aren't genuinely a minority group. So that's... But, you know, for someone who seems to think that way, he sure wrote a scathing allegory with that one. But I'm just saying, all of this stuff, all of this really expansive stuff that I think does make the mutant metaphor more fruitful, those are things that threaten to upset the moral and ethical framework of all these other characters that exist in the Marvel Universe having their own stories. When Carol Danvers walks into the mansion and is like, hey guys, I want to talk to you about like our registration initiative or whatever. And Emma's like, hi, we're cleaning up the corpses of our students who were just murdered in a hate crime bombing. Uh, Fuck you. Get out of my house. That is satisfying to me as a reader but i understand why editorial was like we can't have all of these tortured visible minority characters wandering around that the avengers don't do anything to help i 
get it. Unfortunately, every time you try to take that away, you're getting rid of the stuff that makes the metaphor actually resonant. Because if the Morlocks or the residents of Mutant Town are walking around, then why is it that Charles Xavier in his house only has beautiful and powerful mutants? I mean, this is part of what makes the X-Men such an exciting franchise because it's a constant tension between the necessities of the story they are actually telling in being real, not realistic necessarily, but being real reflections that tell real stories that people who experience varieties of oppression see themselves in and the interests of the corporation that publishes them, which are very frequently in Intention. You know, quite great tension. What makes Kitty Pride worth going to get when Tommy the Morlock is right. not worth going to get? When they're probably about the same age. Tommy's maybe a couple years older, but she's clearly a teenager. Tommy, if you haven't read The Mutant Massacre, listeners, is the first victim of The Mutant Massacre. And the issue, it's a great issue, follows her the entire time as she tries to escape and... Spoiler alert, she doesn't. But she has a power that I think is meant to remind us of Kitty's, which is that she can flatten herself to become as thin as paper and then slide through things. So it's like a version of Kitty's power that's not as good because she can't go through solid stuff. She has to find an opening or a hole or whatever. They hunt her down and Grey Crow blasts her to death with a machine gun. And it's just one of those things where you just have to wonder. She's not as powerful as Kitty is, and she has a visible mutation. Her skin has a rainbow pattern on it. So did he just decide she was too much trouble or not worth it? Because Nightcrawler's worth it. You give him an right. image inducer because he's useful. Right. And with Xavier, you don't very often have Xavier articulating the need for his politics in terms of necessity, in terms of saying, I don't think... It is a just world that we live in, but nevertheless, it is my responsibility to help you navigate it. It is only later when writers, particularly Mike Carey, want to try and sort of see what can be salvaged from Xavier that you really start getting that kind of evolution of Xavier's thinking there. What you most often get is exactly what appears on the package, which usually at the time Xavier was written articulating these things that was respectable political opinion. Xavier saying, simply put, like, we have to protect the world from us. Right. And the person who is always giving the benefit of the doubt and letting these deep structural mechanisms of oppression remain and navigate them. That's always Xavier. He's the one who articulates that. And that all goes back, right, to the very Jewish 60s sensibility of the Stan and Jack comics that introduced this concept, which is like Xavier's whole prerogative, essentially, is not in those stories to take some kind of political action, per se. It's specifically to police other mutants, to prevent Shonda's fedegoyim. Yes. That kind of thing. We can't allow other mutants to go out there and cause trouble. We need to have a mutant police force that stops it before it can happen. And I really can't not bring out the contrast with my king here, but this is the difference 
to be Jewish about this for a moment. Yeah. Between a capo and a sonder commando. Oof. Oh, man. <laughs> because it's Magneto who is telling him most righteously in those moments, fuck this. And if this is where you stand, Charles, then I have to oppose you. I love you. We are people who will make history together. History moves through us. But history can advance unless you yield to me. Please don't make me hurt you. That's a bracing way to put it. But that's definitely how Magneto sees it. Yep. He sees Charles as a collaborator. And that, yeah, I mean, Spencer just held up a panel from Legacy where Frenzy explicitly calls Charles a collaborator. Xavier is a collaborator. He deserves to die. Talk that talk, Joanna. Joanna's the best. Did you uh, like the Mike Carey episode on Joanna? Absolutely not. I fucking loved it. What a fucking dream. You got to talk to Mike fucking Carey. Mike fucking Carey, who writes absolutely one of the best Professor X's. I was going to say the best. I was just about to say, I think he writes the best Xavier that I've read. It might be the GOAT. It's definitely up there. Especially given that he was tasked with salvaging Xavier as a character after Deadly Genesis, which yes. is the most egregious, too far moment that they ever pushed the character. The fact that Carrie is able to salvage it and make the character someone you can even understand again is really remarkable, I think. Should this just be the point where we talk about the carry run, or should we save that? I actually think now is the time that we should pause for the Great. Cerebro character file so that I can spend God only knows how much time going through Professor Xavier's complicated publication history. This is going to be a tricky one, guys, because so much about Xavier, much like Magneto, is revealed progressively via retcon over the course of many years. So since I go in publication order, we're going to start with X-Men 1 in 1963 by Stanley and Jack Kirby. We're going to end with, when you hear this, we're coming up on the big onslaught one-shot that Cy Spurrier is doing, but at the moment, we're just through Way of X number five. I'll take you from point A to point B. I'll reveal things as they're revealed. When we find out that he and Magneto knew each other, I'll tell you exactly when that happened. Bear with. It may be a little bit tricky to follow, but I'm going to do my best. And then we will come back once you have a more comprehensive understanding of this character's publication history for more with Spencer Ackerman and dig into the specific storylines that really resonate and make Xavier such an interesting character. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Charles Francis Xavier, best known as Professor X, is the great patriarch of the X universe. Created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, Charles is the founder, teacher, and leader of the X-Men, the strangest teens of all, and is initially presented as the world's most powerful telepath. Over the years, the character became more complex, with successive writers interested in finding darker depths to the franchise father figure. He now serves as the de facto head of state of Krakoa, the mutant sovereign nation. Professor X debuts in X-Men No. 1 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in 1963, and for much of the 60s run, he's a fairly stopped character, a thoughtful but strict mentor. Because he's paraplegic and uses a wheelchair, Charles is usually kept out of the fray when the X-Men go into battle, and he quickly names Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops, as field leader. Charles directs the team remotely using his vast telepathic power, occasionally arriving in person to do a mind wipe or something. He uses a computer he invented, which he calls Cerebro, to detect mutants both friend and foe, which is usually the kickoff for the plot of the month. 
The team ends up primarily facing off against Magneto and his Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and Charles's students, including Hank McCoy, a.k.a. Beast, Warren Worthington III, a.k.a. Angel, Bobby Drake, a.k.a. Iceman, and Jean Grey, a.k.a. Marvel Girl, in addition to Cyclops, rely on him constantly. He's a reliable patriarch, except for one weird moment early on where he privately bemoans his unrequited love for Jean, but truly do not worry about it. The Juggernaut arc over issues 12 and 13 provides us with some backstory for the character. Born to nuclear physicist Dr. Brian Xavier and his wife Sharon, young Charles's life changed forever when his father was killed in an accident at the plant. His mother ended up remarrying to Dr. Kurt Marco, one of Brian's scientist co-workers. Marco was keen on the wealthy widow's money and moved into the Xavier estate in Westchester, New York with his son Kane, Charles's new stepbrother. Charles's burgeoning telepathy let him see that his stepfather was a gold digger, and after he became physically abusive to Sharon, she eventually drank herself to death. This left Charles alone with Dr. Marco and Kane, who hated him, particularly because Dr. Marco clearly preferred Charles. Kane eventually accused his father of having Brian Xavier killed, much to Charles's horror. The fight turned into a physical altercation, and an explosion in the laboratory fatally injured Dr. Marco. He still managed to carry the two boys to safety and apologized to Charles. While he wasn't responsible for Brian's accident, he could have prevented it, and chose not to. As he died, he warned Charles to beware of Kane. Now wealthy orphans, Charles and Kane didn't get along any better. Charles became a star athlete, but his now fully developed telepathic powers made it feel like cheating, so he decided to retire from track and field. While he was still in high school, all his hair fell out, which he attributed to his telepathy. Kane continued to resent him, and by coincidence, they both ended up drafted into the same unit in the Korean War. When Kane deserted his post during a firefight, Charles chased after him into the ruined temple of Cytorak, an ancient demonic entity. Charles warned Kane not to touch the mystical ruby on the altar, but Kane wouldn't listen and claimed the gem, immediately transforming into the unstoppable juggernaut. A cave-in buried the monstrous new being, but Charles lived in fear of the day Kane would dig his way out. That day is now! The Juggernaut can't be stopped and marches on his old home, now the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. His magic helmet protects him against Charles's telepathy, but Charles is able to put a stop to Kane's rampage once the X-Men and the Human Torch remove it. In the last Lee and Kirby X-Men story, anti-mutant scientist Bolivar Trash debates Charles on television. Charles advocates for mutant rights, but he comes across as a douchebag on the show, and the public is more receptive to Trask, especially when he unveils his impressive new inventions, the mutant-hunting robots he calls the Sentinels. The Sentinels start wreaking havoc, and Trask realizes he's made a terrible mistake. He sacrifices his life to destroy the Master Mold, but the Sentinels will come back. They always come back. Under new writer Roy Thomas, Charles tracks down an old enemy, the alien Lucifer, who paralyzed him years earlier in a story we see in flashback. The X-Men defeat Lucifer, honestly, don't worry about it. Shortly after that, Charles invites Calvin Rankin, aka The Mimic, a former enemy of the X-Men who had infiltrated the group, to join the team for real and seek redemption. Calvin agrees, but only lasts a few missions before losing his powers and leaving again. Meanwhile, Charles experiments on Kane to try to rid him of the demon Ciderac's influence. This doesn't work out so well, and Juggernaut ends up escaping while a comatose Charles is briefly kidnapped by Factor 3. Do not worry about Factor 3. Backup stories beginning in X-Men 38 show us how Xavier formed the X-Men. When the public was first made aware of the so-called mutant menace, Charles went to FBI headquarters and struck a deal with the Bureau. The FBI agreed to give Charles information on newly awakened mutants, and Charles agreed to send the Bureau progress reports on how things were going at his school. He used a tip from his FBI contact, Special Agent Fred Duncan, to locate his first X-Man, Scott Summers. In 1968's X-Men 42, Charles is murdered by the villain Grotesque the Subhuman. 
This was a natural evolution for the book, as the teen characters were now college-aged, and Xavier had somewhat worn out his welcome as a father figure. Two years later, as the book rocketed toward cancellation, a retcon in the penultimate issue, 65, reveals that he actually faked his own death with the help of the X-Men's former enemy, the shapeshifter Changeling, who was terminally ill and died in Xavier's place. Telling only Gene of his survival, Charles hid and figured out how to stop the alien Xenox from conquering Earth. Do not worry about it. The X-Men popped up in guest roles occasionally for the next five years, despite the cancellation of their own title. Then, in 1975, Len Wein and Dave Cockrum relaunched the franchise with the legendary giant-size X-Men number one, which depicts Charles traveling the world to gather a new international team of mutants to rescue his 60s students from the living island Krakoa. All save Cyclops decide to retire after this, leaving Charles with his new students under new writer Chris Claremont, who would write the title for the next 16 years. This immediately turns to tragedy when John Proudstar, a.k.a. Thunderbird, is killed on their second mission. Charles, who's telepathically linked with John as he dies, is traumatized by the first loss of a student. Even the presence of new housekeeper Moira McTaggart, secretly a famous genetic scientist and former lover of Charles's, doesn't soothe his nerves. Eventually, a subconscious telepathic projection of Charles's self-loathing evil side attacks the X-Men in a fill-in issue. You don't have to worry about it, but it's the first of many, many repetitions of this motif. Anyway, Charles is having weird recurring dreams of an alien lady, who turns out to be Lalandra Naramani, rogue princess of the Shi'ar Empire. Lalandra felt his mind when he protected Earth from the Xenox, and decided he is her soulmate. She'd also like his help deposing her evil brother Daken, the Shi'ar Emperor. So the X-Men, now once more including Jean Grey, who's had a cosmic-level power-up and taken the codename Phoenix, go stop Daken from destroying all reality with the Macron Crystal. Lalandra hangs out at the mansion and starts fucking Charles, and they're just vibing until a mission in Antarctica goes wrong and all the X-Men besides Phoenix and a visiting beast are apparently killed. Deeply depressed, Charles is easily convinced to accompany Lalandra to Shi'ar's space, where she's due to take the throne now that Dekan is dead. Uncanny X-Men 117 presents a flashback story that tells us more about Charles' life before he was paralyzed by Lucifer. We learn he met Moira McTaggart, then Moira Kenross, at Oxford, where they fell in love. They were planning to be married, but then Charles was drafted to Korea, and during the war he received a Dear John letter from Moira breaking things off. Aimless after the war ended, without Moira to return to, Charles traveled the world and wound up in Cairo, where he met the first mutants he had ever encountered besides himself. The first was a little girl, a pickpocket with shocking white hair, who would grow up to be his present-day student, Aurora Monroe, a.k.a. Storm. The second was another telepath an Egyptian crime lord named Amal Farouk, called the Shadow King. Farouk and Charles dueled to the death on the astral plane, and Charles ultimately prevailed, apparently destroying Farouk. In the present, Charles discovers some Shi'ar research on the Phoenix that makes him concerned for Jean Grey's welfare. He returns to Earth to warn her, and discovers to his delight that the Exxon believed dead had in fact survived. Reunited with Scott, he's surprised as they find themselves arguing. Charles's hand-on approach doesn't work with this new team and Scott implores Charles to trust his judgment. They're on shaky ground as the Dark Phoenix saga begins, and Jean is corrupted by the Hellfire Club into becoming a genocidal cosmic destroyer. Charles faces down Dark Phoenix in a telepathic battle, and manages to get Jean back in control of her power temporarily. The Shi'ar then capture the X-Men, insisting Phoenix must be destroyed, and Charles uses what he's learned of Shi'ar culture from Lilandra to demand a trial by combat. The X-Men face off against the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, but Jean ultimately decides to kill herself rather than lose control of her cosmic hunger again. Scott goes on leave to mourn, and Charles places Aurora in charge of the X-Men. Charles is somewhat backgrounded in this period, but eventually comes face-to-face with his arch-nemesis Magneto again, leading to a battle where Magneto accidentally injures new X-Men Kitty Pride and is horrified to realize he's harmed a child. 
This provokes a change of heart in Magneto, as we learn about his tragic past in a Nazi concentration camp. Meanwhile, Lalandra's evil sister Deathbird kidnaps Lalandra and Charles. Though the X-Men manage to rescue them, Charles can tell something is wrong. When he tries to analyze himself telepathically, he's shocked into a coma, in which he dreams of memories from his past. 1982's Uncanny X-Men 161, a flashback story, significantly retcons the histories of Xavier and Magneto, establishing that they're old friends. After his adventure in Cairo fighting Amal Farouk, Charles traveled to Haifa in the newly established state of Israel, where a friend of his had opened a clinic for Holocaust survivors coping with post-traumatic personality disorders. There, Charles met and befriended a man called Magnus, a volunteer at the clinic who was himself once a victim in the camps. Charles worked there with a patient named Gabrielle Haller, who had been catatonic since her experiences at Dachau, and was only roused from her fugue state by Xavier's telepathic intervention. After she regained her faculties, Gabby and Charles got to know each other and slowly fell in love. Then the Nazi organization Hydra kidnapped Gabby, believing she was imprinted back at Dachau with the location of hidden Nazi gold. Charles and Magnus are forced to reveal their mutant powers to each other in order to rescue her. They had previously debated the mutant question, and while Charles believed humans and mutants could live in peace, Magnus disagreed due to his own experience at Auschwitz. After they rescued Gabby, he stole the Nazi gold, repurposing it to fund his new mutant solidarity project, and leaves Charles and Gabby behind in Israel. In the present, Charles's recollection of how he shocked Gabby out of her catatonia enables him to rouse himself from his own coma. Then the X-Men and Lelandra get kidnapped by the Brood, and it seems like they're dead. This happens to Charles a lot, the whole, oh no, the X-Men are dead thing. Anyway, he's devastated again, but Moira convinces him he should help a teenage mutant refugee named Chian Koi Man, aka Karma, and this compels him to recruit a new student class, which he calls the New Mutants. It turns out Charles was influenced to do this in part because back when Deathbird kidnapped him and Lalandra, she handed him over to the parasitic insectoid aliens called the Brood, and a Brood Queen implanted an embryo inside him. Its gestation is what caused his coma, and the Brood Queen now growing inside him regards the young mutants as prospective hosts for more of her species. Though the X-Men return from space alive after all, the moment they arrive, Charles begins metamorphosing into an insect as the Brood Queen hatches. With the help of Shi'ar technology, he has his mind transferred into a new cloned body. This new body is not paralyzed, and lifelong athlete Charles is overjoyed to be able to walk again. He decides to begin operating with the X-Men in the field, and clashes with Aurora on how best to lead the group. Around this time, in the X-Men and the Micronauts crossover, it turns out Charles's suppressed evil half had somehow traveled to the Microverse and conquered it. Truly do not worry about this, but if you're counting, that's the second suppressed evil half of Xavier Gaines' independent sentience plot so far. When Aurora loses her powers, apparently forever, the tension between her and Charles is resolved, but Charles quickly realizes he isn't meant to lead the team after all when he gets trapped under some rubble during a battle and has a panic attack, afraid he's been paralyzed again. Nightcrawler eventually takes leadership of the team until Aurora returns. Charles then takes a visiting professorship at Columbia, teaching psychology, in an effort to do outreach in the community. After he speaks positively about mutants in his class, he's attacked later that day by a group of bigoted students as a mutie lover and left for dead. The Morlocks rescue him, and the Morlock healer manages to save his life. But their leader Callisto warns Charles that he needs to be careful about putting too much strain on himself while he's healing. He doesn't get much time to convalesce, because Moira asks him to come to her facility on Muir Island. Gabrielle Holler is there, with her teenage son, an autistic mutant named David, who is suffering from a version of dissociative identity disorder that was, to be fair to Chris Claremont, very in line with the medical understanding of the 1980s. It has not aged very well. 
Anyway, Gabby's come to Moira for help because Moira is the world's leading expert on mutant genetics, but it takes Charles's telepathy to make a difference. It's only after entering David's mind that Charles realizes the boy is his son and that Gabby was pregnant when he left Israel all those years ago. He promises he will always be there for David, which, sure. After a conflict with the cosmic entity called the Beyonder in the company-wide event Secret Wars 2, Charles and Magneto reunite, and Magneto expresses his intention to reform from his criminal ways. He begins living at the mansion and helps prevent a murder at Columbia, the murder of Charles Xavier, targeted again by the students who had earlier attacked him. While the killing is averted, Charles is again injured. He begins to realize that his body is falling apart after the repeated physical traumas, but he's too proud to tell any of the X-Men. Instead, he travels to Paris with Gabrielle, who became a lawyer in the years since she and Charles had their romance, as she prepares to defend Magneto before the International Criminal Court. The trial is interrupted by Andrea and Andreas von Strucker, the neo-Nazi mutant twins called Fenris, who want revenge on Magneto and Charles for humiliating their father Baron Strucker back in Heysol those years ago. Charles is mortally wounded in the crossfire, and as Magneto cradles his dying body, Charles makes him promise to take over the school and become a mentor to the students. Terrified but devoted, Magneto agrees. Luckily, just as Charles is fading away, Empress Lalandra arrives. She sends Charles's pain through their psychic rapport, and she takes him with her to Shi'ar space, where he can be healed by advanced alien technology. When the heroic space pirates called the Starjammers, led by Cyclops' long-lost father, don't worry about it, are attacked by Deathbird's forces, Charles and Lalandra, whose throne has been seized by Deathbird, end up stranded in space and decide to join the team. Charles exits the general narrative for a while at this point, making occasional cameo appearances with the Starjammers. He helps the new mutants rescue magic, for example, when she's lost on an alien world, and eventually he ends up absorbing a fragment of the Phoenix Force during a conflict with Deathbird. Calling himself Bald Phoenix, he rouses the rebels against Deathbird's evil rule. These powers fade pretty quickly, but it's a trippy moment seeing Xavier fly around in a dark phoenix costume. Then there's a whole thing with the Skrulls, honestly, don't worry about it. And six years after he left for Shi'ar space, with Elandra back on the throne, Charles returns to Earth with the X-Men in 1991's Uncanny X-Men 277, because he's heard his old enemy the Shadow King has re-emerged. This leads directly into the Muir Island saga, Claremont's last story on Uncanny X-Men, in which the Shadow King has possessed all the residents of Muir Island, including Charles's son David Haller, aka Legion. Claremont's plan was for the Shadow King to kill Charles in issue 300 as the grand climax of the storyline, but editor Bob Harris interfered heavily with the story, eventually bringing in writer Fabian Niciesa to rewrite sizable portions of Uncanny X-Men 279 and swiftly tie up the Shadow King plot. Claremont quit the book in protest, though he still helped with the launch of the new adjectiveless X-Men title with Jim Lee. During his final battle with the Shadow King, Charles ends up paralyzed again. He's outfitted with a fancy Shi'ar hover chair, but the renewed loss of his ability to walk sends him into a deep depression. Claremont departs the franchise entirely after the first arc of adjectiveless X-Men, in which Magneto returns to his old villainous ways and is apparently killed. Still in denial about being paralyzed again, Charles pushes it too far and nearly dies when he gets too close to a riot. Under new writer Fabian Nicieso, we get some retcon backstory about Brian Xavier, Charles's long-dead scientist father. It turns out he was part of a secret program in Alamogordo, New Mexico, that will eventually be named on page as the Black Womb Project, where he worked with Juggernaut's father, Kurt Marco, the immortal villains Nathaniel Essex, a.k.a. Mr. Sinister, and Amanda Mueller, a.k.a. the Black Womb, and the precognitive mutant Irene Adler, a.k.a. Destiny. Charles is perturbed to learn that his father participated in experiments on mutant children, especially after he attends the funeral of another one of the project scientists, Dr. Alexander Reiking. 
The funeral is attacked by Reiking's mutant son, Carter, a childhood friend of Charles's, who has become mentally unstable after years of medical experimentation. The X-Men defeat Carter, and Charles vows he will uncover what really happened in Alamo Gordo. He then basically never mentions it again. In the franchise-wide event Executioner's Song, Charles gives a speech in favor of mutant rights at a Lila Cheney concert. He's shot by a would-be assassin, apparently X-Force's leader Cable, but actually Cable's evil twin Strife, don't worry about it right now, and infected with a lethal techno-organic virus. The X-Men make a deal with their enemy Apocalypse so that he'll cure the Professor, and Charles is surprised when he wakes to discover that he can walk temporarily as a side effect of the techno-organic infection. Knowing this won't last long, he decides to go rollerblading with young student Jubilee, in a moment that's honestly pretty sweet. She helps him when his paralysis returns. The following year, in the franchise-wide event Fatal Attractions, Charles discovers Magneto is alive and expanding the Acolytes, his group of zealous mutant followers. Charles is startled to see a woman named Amelia Vogt, who was once his girlfriend, among their number. When Magneto threatens the globe with his magnetic powers and tears Wolverine's adamantium out of his body, Charles sees no choice but to telepathically erase Magneto's mind, leaving him brain dead. 1994's Uncanny X-Men 309 by Scott Lobdell and John Romita Jr. is a fascinating character study of Charles Xavier told in his dreamscape. Tormented by guilt over what he did to Magneto, Charles speaks with an imagined version of his old friend as he recalls his ill-fated romance with Amelia Vogt, the nurse who helped him recover after he was first paralyzed, who turned out to be a mutant herself. We learn that Amelia and Charles disagreed on his plan to train mutant students, as Amelia felt the safest option for mutant kind was to remain in hiding and avoid congregating in one place. When Charles brought Scott Summers to the mansion, despite her protests, Amelia decided to leave. For one awful moment, Charles reached out with his telepathy to force her to stay with him. He immediately realized it was wrong and released her, but Amelia was repulsed by what she knew he had done. They never saw each other again until Amelia resurfaced as one of the acolytes. Anyway, the act of erasing Magneto's mind, Eric's mind, I'm just going to call him Eric now because at this point in the story he's called Eric, okay? So the act of erasing Eric's mind awakens something horrible deep within Charles, and we get yet another Charles's evil half-made manifest storyline, this time the big one, the company-wide event Onslaught. This story sucks, and I'll get to it someday in more detail in an Onslaught episode, maybe, God help me, but basically, the Charles-Eric psychic gestalt called Onslaught reprograms Sentinels to attack humans, and eventually decides to destroy all life on Earth after learning about the Age of Apocalypse, where mutants were bad, too. All the non-mutant superheroes apparently sacrifice their lives to destroy Onslaught, and Charles is left back to normal, but now powerless. He's then captured by Bastion. Don't worry about it. In 1997's X-Men Minus One by Scott Lobdell and Brian Hitch, we revisit Charles' relationship with Amelia Vogt. In this story, Charles and Amelia confront Eric at the historic site of Auschwitz. Charles and Eric hadn't seen each other since Haifa, and Charles tries to talk the newly minted terrorist Magneto out of his war on humanity. It doesn't work, obviously. Back in the present, Charles gets broken out of prison by the Toad, randomly. Cerebro has become sentient and started kidnapping mutants, and the Brotherhood needs Charles to help stop it. Don't worry about it. Underwriters Alan Davis and Terry Cavanaugh, in the lead-up to the event called The Twelve, Charles briefly disbands the X-Men in order to root out a Skrull imposter who's replaced Wolverine. Then all the Twelve stuff happens, and it truly does not matter, so do not worry about it. Cyclops is apparently killed, and Charles decides to go back to outer space to train some Skrull teenagers. I don't know. Honestly, I forget most of that storyline, and it doesn't matter. Eventually, he comes back, just in time to be devastated by the murder of Moira McTaggart by Mystique. Charles tries to follow Moira's astral presence into the afterlife, but Jean convinces him to stay. By this point, Eric now rules over Genosha, formerly an anti-mutant apartheid state, but now a mutant sovereign nation. 
After the legacy virus is cured and Eric suddenly has a healthy army, he declares war on the entire world, demanding all governments cede power to Magneto. To make a point, he kidnaps Charles and crucifies him in the public square. Amelia Vogt, distressed by this despite her loyalty to Eric, helps Jean Grey free Charles. Wolverine then apparently kills Magneto, but don't worry about it, he gets better. Storm splits away from Charles to pursue Destiny's diaries, which she doesn't trust him with after the whole onslaught thing. She takes a number of the core X-Men with her to the new book Extreme X-Men, written by Chris Claremont, while Charles moves into Grant Morrison's New X-Men, a major relaunch of the franchise. The first arc of New X-Men, E is for Extinction, opens with the genocide of Genosha by a new villain called Cassandra Nova, a bald woman with a strange resemblance to Charles, who deploys new evolving sentinels to the island nation. These wild sentinels massacre 16 million mutants, half of the world's mutant population, in minutes, apparently including Magneto. Charles is horrified as he witnesses these millions and millions of mutant lives blinking out while he observes via Cerebro, briefly called Cerebra for a while in this period. Don't worry about it. Cassandra then attacks the school and covertly uses her telepathic power to swap bodies with Charles, trapping him in her own body that she preemptively sabotaged. Operating as Charles, with the real Charles unable to communicate, Cassandra abruptly comes out as a mutant on live television, revealing the true nature of the Xavier School to the entire world. She then departs for Shi'ar space in Charles's body, keen to visit Empress Lilandra. When the X-Men figure out what's happened, Jean Grey and Emma Frost enter Charles's mind to discover the truth about Cassandra Nova. She is Charles's twin sister, whom he murdered in the womb when he sensed her evil nature. According to Shi'ar folklore, all living beings have an anti-self called a Mama Dry, and battling this spiritual adversary is essential to the experience of birth. In this interpretation of events, Charles's psychic power was so vast even in the womb that his Mama Dry manifested physically as a sister. Though Cassandra was stillborn after a telepathic battle with her brother in utero, her psychic essence clung to a sewer wall and spent decades rebuilding an unnatural new body based on Charles's DNA. Jean manages to store Charles's consciousness in her mind, and Emma tricks Cassandra into entering a trap. Charles is restored to his own body, with his paralysis apparently miraculously cured by the X-Men's newest member, the healer Zorn. Around this time, over in Extreme X-Men, we learn more about the character Sage, previously known as Hellfire Club member Tessa. In a significant retcon, Claremont establishes that Tessa was one of Charles's first students, but that he kept her separate from the original X-Men. Instead, he trained her as a spy, eventually sending her to act in deep cover as Sebastian Shaw's personal attaché at the Hellfire Club. Given that this basically involved being Shaw's sex slave, this was a pretty fucked up thing for Charles to do. Meanwhile, back in New X-Men, Cassandra Nova's horrific time in Shi'ar space has driven Lilandra insane, and she tries to kill Charles. She's taken away by her advisors, but Charles is informed that his formal relationship with Lilandra is now annulled. Over in Uncanny X-Men, now written by Chuck Austin, Charles reunites with his stepbrother Kane, the Juggernaut, who wants to reform and become a hero. Charles invites him to come live at the mansion, where they grew up together, and he agrees, eventually joining the X-Men for real. The two have a candid conversation about Kane's abusive father and begin to resolve their lifelong differences. Meanwhile, in the Mystique solo series by Brian K. Vaughn and Jorge Lucas, Charles forces Mystique to work for him as a black ops agent now that the X-Men are public and under more media scrutiny. After the story rioted Xavier's, in which a group of students led by Charles's telepathy student Quentin Quire stage a violent takeover of the school, Charles decides to step down as headmaster and appoint Jean to replace him. Before the changeover can happen, Zorn reveals to Charles' shock that he's actually Magneto, and that Charles' spine was never healed. In fact, Eric has been using nano-sentinels in Charles' body to resolve his paralysis through magnetism, and with his true nature revealed, he drops the act. Eric, now profoundly addicted to the power-boosting drug Kick, 
secretly an aerosolized form of the ancient evil entity Sublime, don't worry about it right now, takes over New York City and begins exterminating the humans there. Charles appeals to Eric, insisting that their time as leaders of mutant kind is over, but by now Eric is fully insane and won't listen. The X-Men stop Magneto, but he manages to murder Jean Grey by channeling all his boosted magnetism to give her a planetary-scale stroke. Wolverine decapitates him in retaliation. Apart from the future timeline story, Here Comes Tomorrow, this is the end of the Morrison run. Charles then travels to Genosha with Eric's coffin to hold a funeral, and argues with Eric's daughter Polaris about the right path forward for mutant kind. Charles decides to remain on Genosha and aid in the rebuilding process, leaving the school in the hands of Cyclops and Emma Frost. In a new Chris Claremont maxi-series called Excalibur, not to be confused with literally any other volume of Excalibur, this title doesn't really make any sense, it's promptly revealed in a retcon that Zorn wasn't Magneto after all, and was an imposter. The real Eric has been in hiding in the ruins of Genosha, and begins working with Charles on the rebuilding effort while allowing the world to believe he's dead. When Eric's daughter, the Scarlet Witch, goes crazy, Charles starts worrying that his old friend might be slipping back toward villainy. Toward the end of Extreme X-Men, we learn more about Charles and Tessa's relationship. They first met after Charles is paralyzed by Lucifer, when Tessa saved his life and bandaged his wounds in the Hindu Kush. She had never heard of mutants, but Charles could tell she was one, and they bonded as she worked to bring him back to civilization. Once they reached a hospital, he was airlifted to Mumbai, where he met Amelia Vogt. In Joss Whedon and John Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men, yet another retcon establishes yet another incredibly evil thing Charles Xavier turns out to have done. Back in the 80s, after he upgraded the Danger Room with holographic Shi'ar technology, it turns out the Danger Room computer developed a sentient artificial intelligence. Charles couldn't figure out how to remove the ghost from the machine, and in the interest of continuing to train his students, he decided to lock the intelligence away deep within the Danger Room software. Now, in the present, the consciousness, calling herself Danger, breaks free and makes a robot body for herself, traveling to Genosha in order to kill the man she considers both her father and her captor. The X-Men manage to defeat her, but Cyclops is disgusted with Charles once he understands what happened to Danger, and they part on bad terms. After the decimation, in which the Scarlet Witch, still crazy, attempts to exterminate mutant kind and ends up depowering all but about 200 mutants on Earth with a reality warp, Charles finds himself suddenly able to walk again once the warp subsides. The trade-off? He's been decimated and his telepathy is gone. This is revealed in the event Deadly Genesis, written by Ed Brubaker, where we get the ultimate here's a retcon establishing that Charles Xavier did some evil shit story. It turns out that way back in Giant Size X-Men number 1 in 1975, when the 60s X-Men were captured by Krakoa, Charles didn't initially recruit the International Second Genesis team. First, he went to Moira McTaggart, enlisting her students, Darwin, Petra, Sway, and Vulcan, whom she was training differently, not as combatants like the X-Men. Charles uses telepathy to condense months' worth of Danger Room training into a few hours in each student's mind, and dispatched them to Krakoa, where they were promptly slaughtered. Ashamed of what he'd done, Charles erased the memories of the secret team from the minds of everyone who'd met them, including Moira. And Cyclops, even though Vulcan, real name Gabriel Summers, was his long-lost brother raised in Shi'ar space. Do not worry about that. I just, we don't have time right now. Anyway, in the present, it turns out Vulcan and Darwin survived through the use of Darwin's adaptive mutant power, and now Vulcan wants revenge. In a confrontation on Muir Island, the now-depowered Charles admits to what he did, leaving the X-Men repulsed. Cyclops tells him he's no longer welcome at the school, and severs ties with him. Vulcan then flies off to space to get revenge on the Shi'ar, who enslaved him as a child, and as Brubaker's run on Uncanny X-Men continues, Charles decides to follow him and try to help resolve things. He gathers a ragtag team of X-Men, including Vulcan's brother Havoc, and departs for the Shi'ar galaxy. Cassandra Nova's rampage back in New X-Men has made Charles a public enemy of the Shi'ar, so he uses a disguise to avoid being noticed. 
Eventually, he does get recognized and taken to Shi'ar jail, only freed to bear witness to Vulcan's wedding to Deathbird. The X-Men team up with Lilandra and the Starjammers to stop Vulcan's evil plans involving the Macron Crystal, but Vulcan manages to throw Charles into the mystical space inside the jewel. Darwin's able to retrieve Charles, and once they get back to Earth, it turns out the power of the Macron Crystal has restored Charles' telepathy. Around this time, we learn about Charles' role in the Illuminati, a council of high-powered Marvel characters who've been meeting in secret all along. Do not worry about this. It doesn't really matter, except insofar as it's another example of Charles' collaboration with human authorities. In the 2007 franchise-wide event Messiah Complex, Charles is startled by an overpowering new mutant manifestation he detects via Cerebro. Since no new mutants have manifested since the decimation, this is obviously a pretty big deal. It turns out to be a newborn baby girl, and various factions fight over who will control her. Charles wants to help, but Cyclops basically tells him to fuck off. He ends up contacted by Cable, who believes this baby, Hope, is the mutant Messiah, a historical figure in the future timeline where Cable grew up. Charles manages to get the baby to Cable, who names her Hope Summers, and takes her to the future to raise her in safety. But the X-Man Bishop, who believes Baby Hope is the historical figure who causes his dystopian future, has secretly been trying to kill her. In a desperate effort to stop Cable and Hope from escaping into the future, Bishop accidentally shoots Charles in the head, apparently killing him. Cyclops, devastated despite his falling out with Charles, temporarily disbands the X-Men. This pivots into X-Men Legacy, written by Mike Carey, which is essentially a Charles Xavier solo book for its first long arc. It turns out the Acolytes saved Charles' life by having Tempo freeze time around him. The group's psychic leader, Exodus, keeps Charles alive with technology and attempts to heal his damaged mind. Eventually, he's forced to destroy Charles' psyche and entirely rebuild it, but he runs into difficulties he tries to reintegrate Charles' memories. Magneto comes to help, and only the sound of Eric's voice can wake Charles from his coma. Yes, seriously. Eric has also lost his powers in the decimation, but he uses a laser to grievously injure the acolyte Frenzy when she tries to hurt Charles. This provokes Exodus to attack him, and Charles battles Exodus on the astral plane to protect Eric. When Charles is victorious, Exodus reveals that he wants Charles to become the new leader of the acolytes. Charles refuses the offer and decides to travel the world and visit people from his past in order to help rebuild his memories. This leads into a fun plot that finally resolves some of the Black Womb Project stuff, as Charles discovers he was experimented on by Mr. Sinister as a child, and is nearly possessed by Sinister's consciousness. With the help of Gambit, he fights off Amanda Mueller the Black Womb herself, and manages to shake off Sinister's influence and maintain control of his body. Charles reaches out to Scott and Emma because he's worried Sinister may have also done this to Scott when Scott was growing up in Sinister's orphanage, and while their reunion is tense and upsetting, it ends with some of their issues resolved after Emma humbles Charles by telepathically showing him some of his worst past actions. Charles has a less productive reunion with his stepbrother Kane, who has once again become the villainous juggernaut. He then decides to reconnect with Rogue, who he feels he never adequately helped train to control her dangerous power, but he and Gambit discover she's been kidnapped by Danger. Charles uses his telepathy to link with Danger's artificial consciousness and apologizes to her. He executes a code that frees her from any of her programming, making her a truly free sentient being, and with Danger's help, he's able to figure out how Rogue can finally control her power. As Carrie's Xavier arc draws to a close, Charles decides to return to the beginning of his journey, visiting Exodus and the Acolytes again. He defeats the Acolytes and convinces Exodus that if Exodus doesn't change his ways, he'll make mistakes as terrible as Charles's have been. Exodus disbands the Acolytes and disappears, deciding to find a new way forward. Charles is then kidnapped by Norman Osborn as part of the Dark Reign company-wide event. This isn't really an X-Men event, so I don't really care, but the Dark X-Men storyline that leads into the franchise-wide event Utopia is fun. 
Osborn has Mystique pose as Xavier to legitimize the Dark X-Men and denounce Cyclops. Eventually, Emma Frost, who seems to have betrayed the X-Men, reveals herself as a double agent and rescues Charles. Charles then joins Scott and Emma on the New Island Haven Utopia, where the decimated mutant race is gathering. Scott has no interest in allowing Charles to have any power on Utopia, and doesn't want Charles to go public and recant the things Mystique said in his name. In Cyclops' opinion, Charles should be kept in reserve as a secret weapon. When Eric comes to the island and joins the X-Men, Charles tries to convince Scott that Eric's a bad influence, but Scott ignores him. Later, Charles and Eric have a conversation, and Charles apologizes for his knee-jerk reaction to Eric's arrival. Eric, in turn, apologizes for some of the things he's done in the past. This leads into the franchise-wide event Second Coming, in which Charles' son David turns back up, still tormented by his dissociative identity disorder as the Omega-level threat called Legion. Charles helps David focus and begins directing therapy to help heal his psychosis. The X-Men's mad scientist ally, Dr. Nemesis, tries some experimental treatments Charles doesn't approve of, which leads to the Age of X reality warp when David fights back against the psychic conditioning. After that warp ends, Charles and the scientists of Utopia realize that six of David's alternate personalities have achieved a physical form and escaped from the Legion. Charles enlists a new team of X-Men to track down these personalities and reintegrate them into David's psyche, and ends up including Magneto and Frenzy on the team at Cyclops' insistence. With David's rogue personalities reintegrated, Charles decides Utopia is not a good environment for him, and the two depart for a long therapeutic holiday in Ibiza. This ends Mike Carey's run with the character. Then comes the 2012 crossover Avengers vs. X-Men, wherein the Phoenix Force returns to Earth and compels the Avengers to fight the X-Men. Iron Man shoots the Phoenix with a big gun, splitting it into five pieces that attach to five different X-Men, including Cyclops. As the story continues, Scott ends up absorbing all the pieces as the rest of the Phoenix Five fall. Leaving David behind in safety in Ibiza, Charles travels to Utopia in an effort to talk sense into Scott, but Scott goes full Dark Phoenix and murders him where he stands. Charles is dead for a while. We see him in the afterlife sometimes. In the pages of Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers, the Red Skull steals his brain and implants it into his own body in order to become a telepath. It's really dumb. Using Charles' power, he turns Genosha into a mutant concentration camp, and yada yada yada. Honestly, it's really, I'm not going to cover this shit. Xavier's brain contains an echo of his personality that's able to fight back against the Red Skull. Do not worry about any of this. In a 2017 relaunch of Astonishing X-Men by Charles Soule and Jim Chung, five years after Charles died in Avengers vs. X-Men, the Shadow King tears his spirit out of the world beyond and holds it prisoner on the astral plane. Charles and Farouk fight on the astral plane for what seems subjectively like thousands of years to Charles, but he manages to resist Farouk's power through it all. When Betsy Braddock notices the Shadow King's activity, a small X-Men team travels to the astral plane to face him. Charles returns to life in the body of the X-Men Phantom X, who volunteers to let Charles have his body so that he can be reborn. Betsy, knowing Charles is a schemer, isn't so confident Phantom X actually gave his permission. Now calling himself simply X, Charles helps root out a psychic infection the Shadow King spread across London. But it turns out the infection is pieces of Proteus. Don't worry about him right now. And an Omega-level threat is reborn. Charles and Betsy eventually manage to defeat both Proteus and the Shadow King, but the X-Men still aren't sure if they trust this new version of Charles. He decides to wipe the memory of his resurrection from everyone's mind but Betsy's, so he can take some time to figure out what he wants to do next. He lets Betsy remember him just in case some piece of the Shadow King remains inside him, because she's something of an expert on the Shadow King at this point. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Charles is one of the architects of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Readers learn that throughout the history of the X-Men, Charles has secretly been working with Moira McTaggart, in fact secretly a reincarnating mutant, to ensure the future of mutant kind despite Moira's experience that mutants are inevitably wiped out in every timeline. 
While Moira continues to pretend to be dead, Charles and Eric establish a ruling quiet council of 12 mutants from different political walks of life, including old enemies like Exodus, Mystique, Mr. Sinister, Sebastian Shaw, and Apocalypse. They try to make the new nation, built on the power of mutant resurrection that Moira has discovered, a true home for all mutants, and a superpower without peer among the nations. No more, Charles says, as he abandons his dream of assimilation to declare mutant agency on the global stage. But not all is well in paradise. Nightcrawler and Charles' son David have discovered that Onslaught has returned, and Charles and Eric are both acting more and more erratic. Meanwhile, their continued manipulation of Mystique, whose wife Destiny they refuse to resurrect, is piling high the metaphorical tinder. And soon, an inferno will spark and light and burn. And now, before we return to the show, I'm going to give you a preview of what the Cerebro Season 2 advertisements are going to sound like. I need to test one out before it's legit because I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> Sorry to surprise you with something you didn't sign up for, but that feels very Charles Xavier, doesn't it? X-Men, X-Men. And we're back with Pulitzer Prize-winning national security reporter Spencer Ackerman, author of the recent book Reign of Terror on the direct line between the response to 9-11 and the rise of Trumpist extremism here in the United States. Also, the writer of Forever Wars, a new substack where he is doing all of his national security and international affairs reporting. It is a great read. He is a brilliant guy. And I am excited to speak with him further about Professor Charles Francis Xavier. Spencer, what are you thinking? You've got so many notes. Spencer's rifling through his many, many, many notes, which I love. We love to see it. I love when a guest comes with notes. Okay, so given that we already did giant size... A critical Xavier story is the, and we've talked about this on the Magneto episode, the flashback episode to Magneto and Xavier's kind of earliest encounters. This may be retcon. In Haifa. Yeah, in Haifa in Uncanny 161, where they fight Hydra slash the Nazis. Baron von Strucker, father of the Fenris twins, if you're a Fenris twin fan? I don't know if that's a thing, anybody. You know, actually, Spencer, I'm putting you on the hook right now. Not for, like, anytime soon, but I was looking at my to-do list, and I was like, who the fuck would ever come on to do an episode about Fenris? Oh, God, I have to do Fenris? I feel like we'd be... I feel like we that would, would do a good... That would be kind of fun. All right, we I'm would do a good myself. episode about Fenris, <laughs> I think. I'm talking myself into it. I think we would. I think we would. By the way, we're not going to go into any non-mutant books. So, like, I don't want to go into, like, the Illuminati stuff. Right, World War Hulk. Yeah, like, no, fuck yeah, it. Yeah, like... I skipped over most of it in the character file, honestly, because I don't care. Now, I think it is relevant it is. to establish that Xavier was in the Illuminati, did help create that, and thought it was a good idea. But I don't really want to talk about the Illuminati stories, because I don't care that much. And also, it, while thematically consistent with Xavier, viewing his presentation in non-mutant books is just like such a different task because then you're you're reading both how he's moving in the non-mutant world and then also how the book in its authorial narration rather right. than just the points of view of the characters ping off Xavier and I don't really want to do that. Yeah. The thing that I just want to primarily say about 161 which is an incredible story is that every single time someone gets saved it's Magneto who's doing the saving. It is not <laughs> Professor X. And like, this is after Gabrielle. I was going to say, the only person Xavier saves at all in any of this narrative is Gabrielle, who he manages to telepathically snap out of her catatonia from her experiences in Dachau. But then he 
fucks her. So I don't know how saved Gabrielle was in the end, right? We are going to get to... Oh, we'll get to the Gabrielle of it all, obviously, once we get to Legion. Yes. Well, I was going to go to Legion after, right after this. So we'll get there. Yeah, in a yeah, moment. yeah. We'll get there imminently. There is a scene in which these two Hydra agents, like, are manhandling Gabrielle when Xavier is out cold. And, like, she's honestly screaming. She's screaming, no, Charles, no. And, like, this is actually what Claremont has them say. This is no disrespect to Claremont. This is how they would fucking talk. Stop struggling, Jewess. Ah, she fights like a she-wolf. And the other one goes, a pity about the orders. A broken jaw would quickly teach her to respect her betters. Magneto immediately fucks them all the way up. Yeah, ki- like, like immediately. The absolute, like, like, murders the shit out of these people. And it's fantastic. And this is- Oh, it so- rules. So go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that line where they call her Jewess. Someone in the Discord was just like, whoa, and posted that. (laughs) And I was like, a couple points. One, these are Nazis speaking. Two, Chris Claremont is half Jewish. Three, Jewess wasn't that crazy in the 80s. It was not. So just like, this is an absolute side note, but I really love how Polaris is being characterized in Duggan's X-Men run. I've been calling it her Jewish American princess era. Oh my God, yeah. Well, she really is like living her best. She's showing up with her coffee. She's like, (laughs) I have to have my coffee. Jean, this is disgusting. What are we up to? Her whole vibe this era makes me think of that Gilda Radner SNL commercial the fake commercial for jewess jeans oh god i do Do you remember that that one well now the trouble that you've said this is that like (laughs) you can also see i'll just come out and say this in trial of magneto number one when she throws in his face that his daughter died in a fucking pogrom it's very much a fuck you dad yeah it really is it sounds like my grandfather and my aunt having a fight it just does It's good because Lorna's right is the thing. She's just being really fucking mean about how she says it. And then, of course, he is being absolutely horrible to her. But because the Onslaught Revelation one shot hasn't come out yet, I do want to say we're not entirely sure right now how much Xavier and Magneto are 100% in control of their present actions, like in the immediate present. So that's just a caveat, which we will probably know more about come the end of September. Let me also say for the record, um, having read it now several times, I'm very, very on board with Trial of Magneto. It's amazing. That first issue was killer. It is a text that I had to struggle with. It is a hell of an issue to read if you, A, over-identify with Magneto and B, have two (laughs) daughters. Right. Yeah, I bet. So I had, you know, gone through quite a journey with it, but it is really amazing. I'm very excited to see where this story goes. I think Magneto is in excellent hands. Let's talk about Legion. Well, actually, let's just say- Well, first, first first to go back. Yeah, I'm sorry. This is the problem with us. I was just pivoting (laughs) off the word Jewess. And and it made me think of Jewess jeans. They're skin tight. They're out of sight. Okay, okay. It's a great SNL skit. Look it up. Okay, so this is what Hydra has just done to Gabrielle. This is how Magneto has just saved them all. Xavier is- out cold while all this happens. The first thing that happens when Xavier comes to and sees what's just gone on is Magneto running frantically to him, screaming like the good husband, Charles, you're hurt. And then Magneto has to experience Charles going, Magnus, what did you do to that aircraft? He goes, what had to be done? Uh, I killed some Nazi rapists. Yeah. And Charles goes, was it necessary to slaughter them? Yeah, Charles. Yeah, it fucking it was. was. This is, to me, like, the difficult moments in that marriage. Well, and they don't see each other again after this for, like, 
20 years or whatever. And when they ultimately see each other, we see in flashback in X-Men number four in the astral plane, it is Magneto saying like, please join me. Like, I want you by my side. Like, I don't want to fight you. We talked about this in the Magneto episode, but Charles is the one who fucking strikes first at Magneto consistently. There's also that story that gets retconned in in the 90s where we see Charles and Amelia vote. Oh, we are going to talk so long about this. Yeah, no, I want to talk about Amelia vote generally, yeah. for sure. We'll get there. Yeah, because we also brought that one up on the Magneto episode, and we actually don't talk about that. So this is the time that we actually mm-hmm. have to. For sure. Then we go to, I, I honestly forget, at least one of these issues is New Mutants 27, but it's when we learn about Legion and Charles and Danny, I think, Danny, right, has to like fight in Legion's mind. Yeah. There is a moment right before he invades Gabrielle's mind again, where he says, she's lying, and I suspect whatever she's hiding is vital. But what can I do? When she was helpless, I forced myself into her mind. It was to restore her sanity, the noblest of reasons, or so I have told myself. But it left scars that have never truly healed. It was a cure very nearly worse than the disease. I cannot do that to her again. Now, though, she wishes me to do the same to her son. So two things about that. One, I cannot do that to her again. Yep, right. She will do that so many times. He does it to other people constantly. So many times (laughs) while saying that he doesn't. Cyclops really epically calls him out in Carrie's run for this in in a way that's just absolutely sublime. But then also we can see sort of in that moment kind of between the panels what Charles is doing when he rummages around in someone's mind. He's not listening. He's only taking the thing that he's there to get, regardless of the consequence of that, so he doesn't learn anything from it. Well, it's like going to Kenya to get Storm and take her out. He didn't go there to help the people of the Serengeti. He went there to find something valuable, take it, and bring it home with him. When he's starting to discover that he's David's father, you know, he says, I never knew, Gabby never told me. And like we see David being like, it's so dark, I'm all alone. Because that's who David is in his own mind. He's a terrified child. So from there, we see that he invaded Gabby's mind. Is he trying not to see that David is his son? Because like lots of presentations of Xavier's power show that he's hoovering shit up and he's not necessarily controlling everything. It's not that precise an instrument. So that raises a lot of questions about Charles and deliberate ignorance of his responsibilities and using people again and again as a tool. The other thing that's interesting about that aside to me, that like little soliloquy that he has there, I love a Claremont soliloquy. Always. This is why I miss thought bubbles. I mean, I know that sometimes you can do it in narration boxes, but it doesn't have the same like thoughtful energy to me that the thought bubble has. I think that's also Claremont acknowledging the really fucked up stuff that is lurking in this story about Charles and Gabrielle that the initial story didn't necessarily delve into. It's played more straight as a love story. But now, so first of all, actually, to go way, 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 way back, a thing that I think is important to acknowledge about Charles Xavier is that he's one of the most fascinating figures in the sliding time scale because when he is introduced in X-Men 1 in 1963, I would argue the character is at the oldest, supposed to be about 29 or 30. 
He is a recent vet of the Korean War who right. was drafted while he was at university. That's really important. It's two things. One, the scene in an early issue where he thinks about the romantic feelings he has for Jean Grey, which will become very essential in the Onslaught story. At the time, it's 1963. He's, let's say, 28 and she's 17. He knows it would be inappropriate because he's her teacher. So he's like, I can never say it or whatever. Well, he says she'd never love me in this wheelchair. But let's yeah, let's choose to assume that he knows I'm her teacher. It would be inappropriate. The age gap there for 1963 is not that crazy. I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying it's something that would have been seen as a little bit less crazy. Also, it hadn't been retconned together yet that he'd been training her since she was 11, which is the part that really retroactively makes that horrific. But also, also, what I'm trying to say about Gabrielle is because Gabrielle and Eric are frozen in a very particular moment, particularly Gabrielle, because with Magneto, you get lots of sci-fi reasons why he's not 90 years old. Gabrielle, though, is a normal human who was at Dachau, so she has to be a specific age range, let's say, because she was like a teenager in the camps. So when you get to New Mutants and Legion is a 17, 18-year-old who exists, maybe younger, maybe he's like 16, but the point is, it's been a while since the last time Xavier saw Gabby, and Xavier has to have had his adventures with Eric and Gabby in Haifa before starting the X-Men, and he needs to be roughly the same age as Gabby. So now the character, by virtue of the fact that Gabby has to age in somewhat real time, Xavier is also a character who ages somewhat in real time. And this had already sort of happened I think because he was bald and in a wheelchair, he was read as older than he had been intended to be sort of from the beginning. So by this point in the story, he's much more positioned as someone who's like 45. But it's just an interesting realization that that wasn't necessarily the intent of the character. And introducing his child, who is a literal contemporary of Kitty and the New Mutants, is a very profound aging up of the character that's very textual. And I just think that's an important thing to to note. It is. I think like that might have to just be functionally a dwy, right? It is. No, you can't you can't worry about it. But I think that it is useful to think about because this is also around the same time that Claremont begins writing the character out. And I think it's because once he's so firmly ensconced as this is the patriarch, then a heroic narrative has to remove him. Well said. Yes, that's an excellent point. And it also helps explain the millions of times they try and get rid of Professor X and it just won't work. Yeah. Just like another, there's so much to talk about in just those Legion issues alone, but one of them that also shows like a quintessential Xavier moment is Danny and Doug and Gabby are inside Legion's mind. Professor X has taken them in there and he's saying, but what right have I to endanger children? Just by having the mutants near me, I place them at hazard. Danny and Doug are trying to be like, don't worry, Professor, we can take care of ourselves alone because we're teenagers and we know what we're doing at all circumstances because that's how we think of ourselves. In retrospect, whenever Doug says something like that, it's yeah, like distressing. Like, yeah. yeah. And like immediately, this is in the same panel where he's talking to himself in Thought Bubble about how like he's making like a gigantic ethical mistake by putting these children in danger, he immediately goes, I don't like the idea of splitting our forces, Danielle, but I agree. Apart, we can cover more ground. 
like he's pathological in that sense. He can't stop doing it. He can't stop his manipulations. And we are seeing the consequences of Charles Xavier being Charles Xavier literally in the psychological destruction of his own son. Yep. There's <laughs> not much more to say besides that. Honestly. I agree. I think that's I think that's all you need to say about it. One of the most important Xavier issues of all time, like just such a monumental achievement. And I typically don't really like on balance a lot of Scott Lovedale's X-Men stuff. But my God, Uncanny 309. Let's just if to summarize this, to say this out loud, <laughs> right after Xavier has functionally murdered Magneto. In, yes, fatal in Fatal Attractions, attractions. by wiping his mind. The thing that he spends many years of character history, like insisting is a line he'll never cross. Never ever. He does that. And then we have an issue that takes place entirely in Charles Xavier's mind. And this is really important because we get a two-hander dialogue between Charles and Magneto narrating this story about Charles and Amelia Vote. But the thing is, is that it's not Magneto. The thing is, is that this is Charles conjuring Magneto as a bit of a, a hair shirt for himself. Mm-hmm. Among the things that Magneto, that, okay, so like. Among the things that Charles's projection yes, of Magneto. I'm just going to say in the context of Uncanny 309, I'm just going to say Magneto meaning a synecdoche. Right. Meaning this fake Magneto yes. in Xavier's head. Yeah. The fake Magneto in Xavier's head is kind of constantly telling him he needs to come out of the closet. All of his relationships with women are catastrophic. And the Magneto that Charles Xavier is conjuring is constantly touching him tenderly and explaining to him why the two of them are the only people for one another. That's sort of a callback, right, to Uncanny 200. Oh, yes. To the trial of Magneto. Where he's dying in Magneto's arms and basically says, take my name and take my children. I'm going to read it. Go ahead. So this is after Fenris interrupt the trial of Magneto, original style, the classic trial of Magneto. Magneto's in his titty top that I love so much. Gabby Haller, of course, has just acted as Magneto's defense attorney. So it's a very interesting arc for the three of them. Fenris are trying to get revenge specifically because Magneto and Charles humiliated their father in that flashback story in Israel with Gabby. It's sort of the part two of that story. Xavier is mortally wounded. He is dying. He is bleeding out in Eric's arms. And he says, don't be absurd. It's out of our hands. Promise me, Magneto, you'll carry on in my place take over my school, look after my X-Men, teach the new mutants. And Magneto says, impossible, they'll never accept me. And Charles says, are you afraid? And Eric says, and with good reason. Charles, I'm not worthy of your trust of this awesome responsibility. Please do not ask for what I cannot give. If you haven't seen this panel, they look like they're about to kiss and Magneto has his arm sort of like tucked around Charles's head, is like clutching the back of his head. This scene is, if you do want to read them as lovers, which obviously I do, fascinating because it's Magneto saying, 
I can never be this tender romantic partner that's trustworthy that you want me to be. That's not something I'm capable of. And so the fact that in 309, when Xavier is reflecting on his dysfunctional relationship with Amelia, this apparition, like his Virgil through the Inferno of it, is a projection of Magneto that is romantic and tender and says all of these sweet things to him. Moments after he has killed yes. Magneto <laughs> is a really, the psychosexual drama at the core of Charles Xavier is fascinating to me because so much of it is tied up in Magneto. And then it's true, all of these relationships with women, I mean, you look very specifically at Gabby, Moira, and Amelia, and it's a very repeated pattern, you know? I mean, honestly, I'm a little bit, hesitant to go into this because I'm not queer. Right. So I'm very interested in your read of all of this. But it really reads to me as like Charles, who's very often shown, if he's not like shown kind of yelling, he's shown like super restrained. His body language is extremely tight. He has like a rigid way of carrying himself. Very, which is in, in great contrast to the fluidity with which John Romita Jr. is drawing this apparitional ersatz magneto. But throughout it all, Charles is trying to argue, essentially argue with himself that, in fact, he does love these women. He does have futures with these women. Like, they're rattling them off. And Magneto's right. like, no, no, no. Not Lilandra either. Lilandra is right. the perfect example of escape. And basically trying to say, it's always been me, Charles. I, You know, my reading of Magneto is that he hates himself so much that the greatest liberator in the history of mutant kind simps for fucking Charles Xavier. Well, yeah, that's the only way that it makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, he has to be in love with Charles or it doesn't make sense. Through who Magneto is, what Magneto has experienced, you know, what's Leah's fantastic line? I'm just going to turn to it right now. I carved myself out of torture to stand tall upon the ruins of my subjugation. Fuck yes! That's a good line. What an incredible line. But, like, Magneto hates himself enough to feel like he deserves Charles Xavier. <laughs> The interesting point of tension, too, is that, like, it's not that I'm saying Xavier is gay, because I don't think he, like, I do think he's attracted to these women. It's just that on an emotional and romantic level, the only people he ever really seems to get there with in a real way where he treats them like human beings are Eric and Moira. And it's notable that it's Moira who dumps him. Yes. I mean, and that is Claremont realizing very quickly because when they're first, when Moira's first introduced, Xavier is like, oh, I regret what I did to you. And she's like, oh, it's okay, Charles. Like, we don't have to. And then like literally two issues later, we get the backstory where she dumped him while he was drafted in Korea with a Dear John letter. It's essential and particularly, again, has had real dividends now with the retcons about Moira that Jonathan Hickman did that she's the one with the power in that relationship because all of the other relationships he has with women, even with Lalandra, who is literally the empress of an interstellar galactic empire, he is always the one setting the terms and conditions of the relationship. I do love that he has Lalandra carry him so often. Yeah. It's very much a mommy moment. He's into that too. He is, yeah. And well, I mean, Magneto is older than him. He's into Look. like, you know? Yeah. The fact of the matter is we see this in 309 because the point of the Amelia Vote story, I love Amelia Vote, by the way. That's I do as well. who I think deserves it's a, a lot more attention. Character. So Amelia Vote, if you're not familiar, listeners, because we've mentioned her a bunch on the podcast, but I haven't really talked about her in detail. When Charles is crippled by Lucifer in the Middle East, 
he ends up airlifted to a hospital in Mumbai where Amelia Vote happens to work as a nurse. She's an expat living in India for reasons that I don't believe or disclose. I don't remember. And she's working as a nurse and she's like, it's exciting to see Americans. I'm always excited when an American patient comes in because I can talk to them about the mats, which is a funny beat. We get immediately sort of a characterization. By this point, we know that in the present, Amelia is one of the acolytes and one of the most direct acolytes. Like she is completely on Eric's side. So this flashback issue characterizes Charles, but also shows us why Charles is so shocked to see who Amelia is now in the present. So basically, she's this nurse. She helps nurse him back to health after he's been paralyzed. She falls in love with him slowly because he's so charming with her, even though, you know, he's worried that no one will love him because he's been paralyzed and he can't walk and yada yada. Doesn't matter to her. They fall in love. The only thing that's holding her back is that she's a mutant and she doesn't know that he is. She's worried when she sees all of his, like, genetic research that he's some kind of, you know... Pervert. Well, she's worried that he is somebody who is anti-mutant and is trying to exterminate them or whatever. Like, she's worried he's working on sentinels, basically. They don't exist yet, but you get what I'm saying. You get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So then they reveal to each other that they're mutants, and her power is that she can transubstantiate her body into, like, a mist or vapor... And she can also do it to other people and objects and then teleport the vapor through space. So it doesn't really make scientific sense, but it looks really fucking cool. She's a teleporter with a mist form. It does look cool. We just saw her more recently in S.W.O.R.D. because she's now part of the teleport team at S.W.O.R.D. And she was the one who basically took Korra of the Burning Heart around the Snark War to execute all of the potential heads of state that Abigail Brand did not want taking the Zanark's throne, which was... Amazing. Talk about mutant CIA. Like, Hank should start taking notes from Abigail, who really knows what the fuck she's doing. If you want to... We'll be talking about Krakoa X-Force later, but yes. (laughs) But no, but I'm... So I'm just saying, anyway, this issue, though, Amelia's position is that mutants need to hide. She doesn't think that congregating as mutants in one place is a smart idea, and she and Charles argue about that in the lead-up to him starting the X-Men. And the day that he brings Scott to the school and is like, this is my student now, she's like, you know, we've talked about this, and you're really not respecting my opinion, and she leaves him. And on her way out the door, he reaches out with his telepathy, and when he relates this, he's clearly ashamed of himself. He's like, this is one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. He reaches out for just a moment with his telepathy to make her stay, and she feels it, and then he lets it go because he realizes that that's evil, and she looks back at him with an unbelievable disgust, and she punches him in the fucking face. It is... Great. And then she walks out and he never sees her again until she's one of Magneto's acolytes and is threatening Moira's life pretty shortly thereafter, which I think is interesting. The other scene you get there is that before they broke up, Amelia accompanied him to Auschwitz to try and talk sense into Eric's sense as they saw it. They say to Eric, you know, this stuff you're doing is Magneto. This is early in Magneto's existence as a figure on the world stage. This stuff you're doing is Magneto is only going to create more camps like this, which is a really bold thing to say. It's an incredibly fucked up thing to say. You know, that's their last interaction. And it's, I think Amelia was actually kind of impressed with Magneto in that meeting because that's clearly where she gravitates later on. But I think it's in part because she is so, like, why does Amelia vote become an acolyte? Because 
she trusted Charles Xavier and he violated her. You know, the only thing that could have been worse would have been if he didn't realize that what he was doing was wrong. But the fact that he even thought, I will force her to stay and love me, even for a second, she's like, everything about his approach has to be wrong, right? That guy is not someone you can look to now for any kind of moral advice. And the way that they tell that story... This really has to be considered a masterpiece. This is a really profound X-Men comic. It's an incredible issue. One of my favorites from the 90s. But it takes the Ursatz Magneto several times to interject as Charles is narrating this memory to say, no, it didn't happen like that. That's not what happened, Charles. You're lying about this. Yeah. You're lying about this to yourself. So I think it's kind of an open question if before, like Charles in that moment, knows that he's doing something evil and regrets it deeply. And I I wonder if he just sort of buries it in his mind. And it's only when he's having this issue. Well, when he's faced with her because she's back in his life and he can't talk to Eric about it. Nobody else knows Amelia. Right. Eric is dead. Right. The way the issue ends gets them back to kind of like safer heterosexual harbors as well as kind of safer moral harbors. This is kind of a moment where like the text and the imagery is rebelling against like the editorial structure of the story, it can seem. (laughs) But like the Ursatz Magneto is trying to tell Charles Xavier that the way he lives and the way he structures his life is based on exceptionally arbitrary and unhealthy patterns that he's imposing on himself. And it doesn't have to be this way. He says, maybe you can finally understand that it is possible to be true to your goal and still pursue your own personal happiness. The two are not mutually exclusive. Charles says to Magneto slash himself, you're referring to what Scott and Jean have. And Magneto and Professor X look in each other's eyes. And of course, it's not really Magneto. So this is more Professor X realizing something. It's Charles's ideal Magneto. Yes. They look each other in the eyes and Magneto in air quotes says exactly what Scott and Jean have. <laughs> it's an incredible panel. This issue rules. This issue this fucking wins. So this is why I have such affection for Amelia Vote is because this one issue is so fucking cool. And then they end the issue with, like, Charles, like, snapping back and coming to, like, have a conversation with Gene in which he basically is just like, make sure you love Scott. Love him so hard, you know, when you were married. And, like, it it is much more of, like, a mentorly, fatherly moment. Yes. When an alternative ending to the book is just with that last panel, with Xavier staring at the love that he himself destroyed. Yeah. And, of course, this act, the wiping of Magneto's mind, leaving him essentially in a vegetative state on Asteroid M, Avalon, whichever one it is at that point, it's Avalon. (laughs) He's always got some space base, I don't know, whatever it's called. That is what creates Onslaught, because when Charles opens that link between their minds, this is the explanation given on the page. When Charles opens that link between their minds, all of Eric's rage and violent tendencies spill into him and are sort of infecting him. And that, combined with his own vast power, is what creates Onslaught. I agree that Onslaught is like their child, and someday I'll get into this in probably like an Onslaught episode, my God, now that I'm thinking about it. Because it is sort of a separate character, I think. Yeah. But what I really see Onslaught as on that level, it's not Magneto's evil 
that got into Charles Xavier. It's Magneto's willingness to act. It's Magneto's desire to rebel, to assert dominance in the way that Charles, with his obsession with assimilating, has never reached. Charles is still, at this point, not openly out as a mutant. He won't be until Grant Morrison's new X-Men. He's still pretending, like Moira, as Hickman has now revealed, to be a human ally of mutant kind and is only honest about it with the X-Men. Now, I don't like Onslaught. No, it sucks. Put it this way. I'm never going to like Onslaught the story. What I dislike is Onslaught the concept precisely because the terms of the arrangement hold that on some level, it is Magneto who corrupts Xavier. And I think that's right. total bullshit. But that's why I'm reframing it. Let me offer an alternative reframing, which is that together, the union, however you wish to define it, of Charles and Eric is so profound as to generate its own mummadry. Mm-hmm. Onslaught is that. Like, much as Cassandra Nova is like Charles's own, when Charles and Eric kind of combine, that is just how I choose to interpret Onslaught. I agree. I view Onslaught as a separate being created from the union of those two minds. But who brings the evil into the question yeah, is something on. that, yeah, come on. Moving forward to New X-Men, where Charles is outed to the public as a mutant. Notably, he does it on television, and that's what Moira sees in the flashback in House of X in one of her previous lives. So the question is, in that life, maybe he did do it of his own volition, but in this Mm. life, the thing that's important to remember is that he doesn't do it at all. It's Cassandra Nova occupying his body. And she does it without consulting Scott or Jean or anyone else. She does it on live television. She endangers everyone. It's a brilliant stroke of genius from her as many of her decisions like if you are bent on mutant genocide nobody's ever done it better or more efficiently than cassandra nova she knows exactly what she's doing she got the assignment and she is doing her job you absolutely do not have to hand it to her no exactly it's like it's exactly (laughs) that tweet it's like wow extremely impressive wait i'm sorry i'm trying to remove it (laughs) but so the fact of the matter though is that If we are to look at Cassandra Nova in the context of Grant Morrison's work more generally, Cassandra Nova is Charles Xavier, right? Like there is, I mean, that's the point of the Mama Dry, the anti-self. Like she is a Jungian anima in him. They are one being. She was born of his telepathy in the womb. It's like a very specific thing. And I was saying this in the Discord recently when I was trying to explain John Sublime to a newer reader. So I explained what John Sublime is in the context of Morrison's story, like overall. And then I was like, but the thing is, he's also a metaphor. Yes. In the work of Grant Morrison, in the work of lots of different authors, obviously, but very specifically in their work, metaphors are real. Like that doesn't make it not a real thing. This has to do with Morrison's spiritual beliefs, right? Like in chaos magic and all of that stuff. So the idea that speaking an idea or a meme into the world creates something real is very real to Morrison. And therefore, in their work, you get something like this where, yes, Cassandra is a literal being, this literal alien creature that wants to kill all mutants. She's also, though, just part of Charles that's been literalized and externalized in a metaphorical sense. Those two things exist at the same time, in the same way that Sublime, to go back, 
this is not super relevant to this episode, but Sublime is an ancient bacterium that shapes all of the events that built the Weapon Plus program, all of this stuff over centuries, but also is just a metaphor because people are like, oh, I don't like that like some evil bacterium created the Weapon Plus program. That should just be human evil. I'm like, well, but Sublime is also just a yeah. metaphor for human evil. So you have to... <laughs> You have to be willing to grant in Grant's work that characters can be both non-literal and literal at the same time, is I guess what I'm saying. We'll go into that on, I guess, a John Sublime episode someday. God only knows. But yeah, it's key that it happens here, that it's his literal anti-self that is open and honest about being a mutant yes. to the public. And then he is rewarded, in his view, for his honesty now, like for living his actualized life with regaining the ability to walk. This is the thing about Charles, and this is why I have a lot of sympathy for people who are upset whenever Charles Xavier walks from a disability politics mm -hmm. perspective. It is important to recognize, though, that at this point, he has probably walked in as many issues as he's not walked from very early on. The other thing is like, so this is me personally, my opinion as an able-bodied person, which matters for shit when talking about like how you, if you're listening, and you are a disabled person, particularly a person in a wheelchair, should react to this. I see it as a little different from Barbara Gordon, where I really did feel like that was a mistake. Barbara was a character where, yes, this terrible traumatic thing happened to her. It changed her relationship to her body. It changed what she was able to do in the field. But she pivoted and became an even greater heroine than she had been before, in my opinion, as Oracle. She learned to embrace her new status quo. Charles is a character who, from his earliest appearances in the 60s, has a really violent resentment of his disability and takes any opportunity possible to heal it. You see that in the Amelia Vote issue in 309 particularly. Yep. And it's baked way back at the beginning of Gene would never love me. Right. I'm the guy in a wheelchair. He just, he's angry. He's really angry about it. Like when the Shi'ar clone him into a new body and he can walk again, it's like the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. And so I guess where I would go with it is like, outside of representationally, I'm just not sure he was like a good character for disability politics. Certainly not. He wants to escape it. Yeah, it's like a prevailing obsession of his. And I think that on some level, I mean, really, I don't think they ever should have put him back in the chair after the cloning. I think that we should have just moved on because in this case, they just did it for nostalgia. Like, that's the thing that's really weird, right? It's when they start, because Claremont's plan. Yeah. This is actually important context. Claremont's plan for the Muir Island saga and the Shadow King and all of that, the plan was the Shadow King was going to kill Charles Xavier for real, not a joke, not an imaginary story. Charles Xavier is dead. The Muir Island saga was extensively editorially interfered with. They brought in Fabian Niciesa to rewrite some stuff. Charles does not die, but he does end up paralyzed again. And it really just felt like it was to put him back in a new fancy space age wheelchair for this 90s back to basics. We want the X-Men to just be the X-Men again initiative. I'm glad you brought this up. I don't really think that I'm the right person to discuss the disability aspect of Xavier, but it's an important aspect of the character. I've learned a lot over the years in particular, and I want to thank him from Jay Edited mm -hmm. discussing 
the X-Men and Charles Xavier in the context of disability politics. I think that's been an incredible contribution. So what I'd like to say, basically, this is kind of like in the Mystique episode where I was like, write in with your thoughts, trans listeners. In this case, I would just like to invite any listeners with a physical disability in particular. If you have thoughts on this that you'd like me to share in a later episode, I'd be happy to do that. I truly just don't know how I feel about it, but it feels less cut and dry to me than a case like Barbara Gordon's where I definitely think that was like that was nostalgia taking her out of the chair, right? Yes. The problem is once you put Xavier back in his chair, he is so enraged. It's framed as a punishment. Because for Charles, that's what it is. He feels like being disabled is a punishment and is a statement on his character in some way. He has this very, very old-fashioned and nasty view of disability that creates a profound self-loathing in him. And I think it's sometimes really unfortunate moments in his character history. He has been kind of drawn in the chair like during the moments of his greatest like moral transgressions, that is a very unfortunate visual metaphor. When Charles is in the chair, he's constantly thinking about how awful his disability is and conveying that opinion on the page. And then at the same time, he also sort of becomes, here's what it really is. Charles Xavier, over the course of the last 58 years, has become a character that I think most people regard as, if not villainous, certainly manipulative, Machiavellian, morally suspect. When you have him sitting in the chair, sometimes that becomes like Niles Calder from Doom Patrol. There's a cliche of sort of the evil disabled person who's scheming. Like, it's a thing. Yeah. If you're going to lean into Xavier's moral failings, which Krakoa as an era really has done, I think it's good not to have him be the representation of the disabled character. I think it's better to have a character like Karma be that person. But again, it's not my experience. So I welcome anyone who wants to write in with their thoughts on this, especially wheelchair users. But that's sort of always been my take is that as the character became more gray and amoral, it started to, I think, be a little unfortunate optically. It played into a trope that is used to harm people. Yeah. To skip ahead a whole lot, the Mike Carey run Those X-Men legacy issues are so fucking good. It is one of the simple, greatest treatments of Xavier. You said earlier in the episode, you think it it, it takes the crown. I think it's the best one. I don't really have a good counterexample for you. So I'm going to go with that. One of the things that I think is an available reading, not saying that this was where Mike was going or that you have to have this interpretation, but I think an available reading of the Xavier arc of X-Men Legacy is that Charles is kind of an unrebootable character. That all of this stuff, the manipulation is baked in so deeply. His role in mutant political history is so indelible, even as throughout the character history, various writers have had him kind of expand it. Like, no, when you get Frenzy saying he's a collaborator and he deserves to die, that's the judgment of history. And the way that it sort of suggests Xavier is an unrebootable character is by saying, like, the only way you can have him move forward 
is just by saying aggressively, like, I don't remember doing all this and, like, my mind and such have been messed with so much that I can't be responsible for who I used to be. I can only be responsible for who I am going forward. That sure is a choice. That's a profound thing to have Xavier express, and it is very much consistent with who he's kind of always been. And Carrie sort of amazingly draws this out when Cyclops confronts him and Xavier is giving this whole, like, that's who I used to be. I have no recollection of doing any of these things. It's like I was a different person. So how can I account for it? And Cyclops just says to him, why do you think it's okay to reach into people's minds and rearrange the furniture? And he goes, I don't do it lightly, Scott, which kind of drops away the, I don't remember all of this and I'm not responsible for who I used to be and I'm not accountable for my growth and my change if I'm going to do that and accordingly making amends with those whom I've harmed or at least offering amends. Cyclops just responds immediately, then how come you do it so often? It's so good. (laughs) And this is Cyclops. Yeah, well, it's the only character who can really shame Charles, which is why I really don't think Avengers versus X-Men works at all. But It doesn't work at all at all. Sorry. It's Yeah, no, it just doesn't work. Sorry. Amazing writers, but kind of conceptually doomed. At core, first, its understanding of the Phoenix doesn't make sense and is unfortunate because it's now how the Phoenix has been written ever since. And two, the Charles and Scott dynamic is entirely backwards in that whole story. I don't want to derail We don't want to derail. Just saying... Doesn't work. No, no, I agree. The trouble is, is I was, I'm tempted to derail it by saying like AVX might be the X-Men's war on terror, but I'm going to spare everyone. Oh yeah, no, that's, you know what that is? Yeah. That's a Substack post where you plug (laughs) my podcast. That's a post for your newsletter. That's very good. Yes. Okay. So Carrie's run is brilliant. Everyone should read it. It's an amazing exploration of Charles Xavier and his consequences. Once again, Magneto comes to this man's rescue and is not appreciated. Magneto burns out Frenzy's eye. Yeah, with a laser because she tries to kill Charles. Exactly. And Magneto's like, nope, you're not going to do that. Joanna is his most loyal acolyte. Absolutely. She's his right hand. Absolutely. the second, the second that she tries to kill Charles, done. Only I get to kill Charles. That's my husband. That's like... <laughs> Without a second thought. He apologizes for nothing. He just does it. She's right. around He's like, you're floor. done. And then finally, I think we look at, in the Krakoa era, while there is so much to talk about with Charles in Hoxpox, to me, the question of who Charles Xavier is going forward is meaningfully addressed, if not outright answered, In X-Force number three, when Charles is brought back after the assassination, and he's the first to go through the real resurrection protocol, particularly given the damage to Cerebro and the uncertainty whether, like, Charles could really come back. Right, because Cerebro's damaged and it's Gene's first time doing it. Yes. The first time someone besides Charles has done the telepathic process so there's a whole lot of variables of like will this work at all is or is Krakoa over before it started and while this will always be an available escape hatch for a retcon we're just going to stay with it right now as it is on panel because the thing that matters here is that Charles comes out of this and is looking at the waterfall as essentially the proto x-force plus magneto assembles and they're waiting to hear what Charles is going to say about how they respond to this political attack. And, you know, Benjamin Percy deserves so much credit for writing Xavier in a very sharp voice. I was hoping we were beyond this, honestly, but they, whoever they are operating from the shadows 
so we must respond in kind. You studied our enemy and determined they're trying to catch up with us, bioengineering themselves into weapons, using science to give them what nature won't, little callback to sublime. And you, you followed their scent and spilled their blood like hunters. He's saying this with admiration and respect. The left hand turns a page, the right hand makes a fist. That feels right to me. That feels like a force of good. To me, my X-Force. And then we have the mutant CIA. And we have everything that comes out of that. And think about also who he assembles. Hank and Gene. Hank and Gene and Tessa. Yep. It's a very specific trio at the core of that. The support staff, Wolverine, Quentin, Domino, those are people he's willing to send out in the field and in danger because they're happy to do it. The people he chooses to lead are ideologically his closest children, Hank and Gene. That's why I separated them out, yeah. Yeah, and Tessa, who is the daughter, the redheaded stepchild, as it were, Absolutely. although she's the brunette to Gene's redhead, ironically, but you get what I'm saying, which is like, she's the child that he has always asked to do the dirty work. And now he's saying, Hunt, can you assist the two children I love more than That's you right. with all of this? That would be great, because they need your advice, but I don't want you in charge. Look, the bastard child in a different context runs the July 26th movement. So we'll just leave that there. I don't know if X-Men really want to go there. But yeah, with Sage, Xavier is once again relying on someone who he is just simply used to using as a tool. Mm -hmm. Whereas he knows Hank and Jean will just ride for him. Yes. You know how I feel about this era. I'm so excited for Inferno. I'm really excited to see... I know where Hickman is going to take Moira and Eric and Charles and Emma and Raven in this sort of last dance before, at least for now, they did say for now 50 times in that interview, in case people didn't notice that, he leaves X-Men. I will say, hilarious proof that I have no advanced knowledge of what's going on, because the episode before it was announced, I was like, people are so paranoid, there's no way he's going anywhere. <laughs> so, you know... Isn't that rag on my face? But seriously, there was actually Cy Spurrier. If people are still stressed about the Hicksit, Cy Spurrier did a fantastic interview with Comic Book Herald recently where he outlined in his extremely soothing British accent mm. exactly why the decision was made and how excited Jonathan is about everything that's happening from here on out, how he told them this was exactly the right thing to do, and how limited in scope the future pitches he had were and how much he's not wedded to them and how much they're all aware of where his story was going and where things might go now and yada, yada, yada. And their continued working relationship with him, he's staying in the X-Slack. So it may reassure you if you're still someone running around in a panic because dad's leaving. Sometimes dad leaves because the kids are all right. In this case in particular, I think like... <laughs> the New Mutants were never better than after Charles left. That's the whole thing, right? <laughs> right. And in this case, it's so hard to pick like which of these books is your favorite. Because they're, they're all giving you, like, the different flavors, the different angles of mutant kind. And, like, focusing too much or even, you know, I, this is it, at the risk of presumption, over-determining the degree to which the X books are really Hickman's books, I think is a, I think is a really big right. mistake. And lets you kind of have an excuse not to see that, like, I don't think the New Mutants 
really have been better than under Vita Ayala. Than under Ayala. Like, I think this is an incredible, epic, like, mutant history is being made before our eyes. I would in agree. In such an amazing way. And it's going to continue like that with so many of the personages and, and new people who are going to come in and play with the concept. And I just feel very excited. Well, and this is just a tendency in fandom, right? There's a tendency toward the great man. There's a tendency oh, well toward said. auteurism. Yeah. This is an unprecedented level of collaboration, this ex office that he put together. This, people are like, what about Hickman's vision? I'm like, We're Hickman's vision was this collaborative office. This is the vision. The vision wasn't maybe three years from now we do this with the phalanx. The vision was... I'm going to create an entirely new way of operating in Big Two Comics. He has created one of the greatest rooms, teams of writers, I think, have ever been on a franchise at the same time at either company. We know there's more people who haven't even been announced yet. I think that the best is truly yet to come, and I'm super, super excited. Reject conventional visions of authorial intent. Reject conventional presumptions of auteurism. They are downstream of the capitalist mode of production. Well, yeah, like particularly in corporate comics, it's just like a kind of a silly way to think about it, in my opinion, because there are so many people with their hands in it. Anyway, moving on. I think now is a good time to go to the listener questions because we got a lot of them. So (laughs) I am going to dig in and we are going to do our best to answer your questions Xavier is a complicated character, so there's no way we can cover all of it, but we're going to do our best. Stephen Adewell writes, Hi, Connor and Spencer. I have a couple questions about Charles Xavier. As an adult amputee, I find that I have a different experience of my disability compared to someone who was born with or developed their disability early in life. Do you see Xavier's attitude towards mutant issues, and especially the mutant closet, as related to his views about disability, especially after becoming disabled as an adult after living an extremely physically active lifestyle? Does he view being a mutant as more or less intrinsic to his identity than being disabled? So, wow, that's actually exactly what I was hoping someone would write in with when we were talking earlier, because... Yes, that's, yes, absolutely. Xavier sees mutanthood as a natural state of his being. He quit running track, which he was a prodigy at, because he was instinctively reading all of his opponents and knew when they would slow down to breathe or sprint or whatever, and he realized it was cheating. But his tendencies have always been toward athleticism, and his mutation only enhanced that. We think of his mutation as being a counterbalance to his disability, right? Like Because that's the functional reason it's written into the story. Because this character yes. is and disabled... That's the trope. Yeah, because this character is disabled, he has to have a mental power, and the power also allows him to astral project around the world so he can participate in these adventures to whatever extent. In reality, for the character in-universe, he was a mutant and a telepath and all of these things for many, many years before he was paralyzed. And for him, the paralysis is simply something holding him back. It's not an identity. He does not see himself, I don't think, as a disabled person. It's not an identity for him at all. It is a condition that was forced upon him that he resents and that he thinks is unfortunate. That's all it is for him. Love you, Steve, and definitely don't want to be like disability explaining to you or really anyone else. Well, I'm just agreeing. I just think that's exactly what it is. I totally do as well. He views the disability as a condition to be fixed. And when he has the opportunity to quote unquote, fix it, 
that's what he chooses to do yeah. in a way that he would not take the quote unquote cure. Correct. From Kavitha Rao. However, because of that contradiction, it destabilizes a lot of how we should think of Xavier thinking of mutant kind or like pose as a challenge to Xavier that if you don't think this thing ought to be cured, do you feel like karma is somehow incomplete? Right. Because she embraces her disability? Because she chose to be resurrected with her amputation intact as opposed to getting her leg back. So I think that's that's a that's a very fruitful um, tension, if not contradiction, to explore. I would like to see Sean and Charles talk about that. It would be wonderful to read. I think that would be a really interesting thing to have them talk about on page because she has made an affirmative choice. You would have to go and tell Proteus, when you bring me back, I would still like to only have one leg. Thank you. She had to go and give that note because otherwise they would have just brought her back as she was before Second Coming. And that's a very recent injury in publication history. It's only been about a decade. And in terms of her story in universe, that happened maybe a couple years ago because of the sliding timescale. She is a much more well-adjusted person, though, than Charles is. And that speaks to her character because Sean is someone who's been through a lot more suffering and hardship than Charles ever has experienced in his entire life. And she doesn't view this thing that happened to her as limiting her or holding her back or as a sin by the world against her or as something that must be fixed or avenged in the way that Charles absolutely, absolutely does. I mean, he literally gets paralyzed by an alien called Lucifer. (laughs) This is in the 60s, but like, you know, the devil did this to him. Yeah. It's not something from which he takes any empowerment, identity, or anything. It's just something he hates. And I think that that informs a lot of his politics, right? Because he doesn't understand people like the Morlocks. If you're looking at disability as a metaphor, he can't understand the kind of person who would walk around in public looking that way and not be ashamed of it. He doesn't understand that, which is why when he brings Nightcrawler into the fold, he gives Nightcrawler an image inducer that makes him look human with a hologram. That's a practical consideration. It allows Nightcrawler to participate in civilian scenes at Harry's hideaway or whatever with the other characters. But it also speaks to Charles's attitude toward the condition of being visually abnormal. It cuts against that wonderful line in Giant Size, where, as we were saying earlier, right. he contends to Nightcrawler, why would you want to be normal? It becomes, why would you want to be normal unless people are looking, in which case you want to appear normal. Right. And Charles, by virtue of the fact that he's in a wheelchair, feels like he's always set apart, feels like he's always being looked at and judged in a way that he, as otherwise a wealthy, attractive wasp from New England, or I guess New York, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not upstate. Let me be clear. Westchester is not upstate. Mm. It's not. Is it though? It's in the south of the state. You can't be upstate if you're south of Albany. I'm sorry. That's ridiculous. Uh, you know, from the perspective of most people who live in New York State, that is the people of New York City, I think uh, upstate starts when you get north of Yonkers. In that it's literally <laughs> up. Yes. I don't think North Salem is upstate. I think that's ridiculous. Upstate is like Syracuse. Rochester is upstate. 
Buffalo is upstate. Listen, son. Upstate starts at Pelham Bay. Hey, I'm, yeah, just, yeah, I'm yeah. just trolling you now. Okay, yeah. For a lot of people in New York City, upstate starts at 125th Street. Very unfortunate and very true. Just to be real. Yep. Anyway, Stephen also asks on that subject. Stephen's great, by the way. Stephen will eventually be on the pod. We've talked about Love that. Love that dude. He's very smart. He's a smart critic. Legendary A Song of Ice and Fire critic. He has A Song of Ice and Fire situation going on that is really deep. And someday when I'm less traumatized from the TV show and can get fully back into my deep love of those books, I'll probably dig into that. Great cast. Beautiful cast. Bad show. Anyway, he says... I would argue that Xavier, old money Westchester wasp, parents worked on the bomb, elite academic. We haven't even talked about the Black Womb Project, actually. We should get There's there. There's so much would be- <laughs> stuff to talk about with <laughs> Professor X. Give us a break. Ah, uh, I know. Would be a Rockefeller Republican who would have voted for LBJ in 1964 because he viewed Goldwater as a dangerous fanatic, but who then went back to the GOP to vote for Nixon in 68 and 72, but then repented of that decision after Watergate. (laughs) Are there any other X-Men who have specific political allegiances based on some part of their backstory? So that's a funny, that's a funny take. Well, 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 I mean, so many of them, but kind of in in a way that would be too banal to express. So I'm going to assume Stephen means like particular, like mainstream electoral coalition politics, yeah, 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 right? Yeah, 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 I think, for example, that Cannonball and Husk are very much like rare Kentucky Democrats because they're like union people. Like, I think that yeah. there are certain characters where you could pinpoint stuff like that. Emma Frost absolutely voted Republican until it became a gay rights issue, and then she switched. Beast and Jean, I think, are Clinton people. Absolutely. The quintessential Clinton slash Reagan person is, of course, Valerie Cooper, mm-hmm. who, depending on whether she was an appointee or a career person, Alana Levin and I were just talking about this. I was literally listening to this before recording. Whether Val is a Republican or a Democrat, when she's introduced, she's in the Reagan administration. But by the time she's a major character under Peter David, it's the Clinton administration. And either way, she's working for the government. So she kind of has to be flexible. I see her maybe... I changed my opinion on this a lot, but I think my read on her is that she's like an Olympia Snow Republican kind of person, or that she more pointedly is Ainsley Hayes from the West Wing, right? Like, is that character who would work for the Dem administration as the, like, acceptable Republican to the people in power, not necessarily to the electorate. Kate Pride is obviously a Democrat. She has political aspirations whenever Claremont writes her because that was a thing that he was obsessed with having her do. And she would absolutely be like a Liz Warren type person, I think. I see Kate as like an Obama Democrat whose like definitions are now kind of in flux under challenge from both the left and from Yeah, reality. no, that's, yeah, I, you know what? Which might push her ultimately to be a longer way of saying a Liz Warren Well, Democrat. that's what I'm saying, right? It's like, I yes. Then I would say that the Kirsten Gillibrand of the X-Men is Jean. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. She grew up at Bard. Annandale on Hudson, right? Yeah. Her grave is at Bard College. You can go there from the Phoenix Saga. Now, I I don't know. Her father was a college professor. Maybe they were never... The point is just, I think that she probably is someone who went from somewhat more socially conservative politics to a centrist kind of political mode to a more left political mode, which is, I think, what Gillibrand has done over the course of her career. I Overall, in terms of how much I like any senator that I've ever had, I like mm-hmm. Gillibrand. Look, I'm old enough to remember Al D'Amato. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, we haven't exactly, you know. New York State. We haven't exactly covered ourselves in glory in terms of statewide officials. 
giant, giant L's. How many governors have resigned now? Like, come on, you know. It's a ceremony. Look, we'll see about Tish James. I have faith in her. I love Tish James. She is great. Especially for a fucking attorney general. Like, she is... Man, I loved her as public advocate, though. I thought she was great. Exactly. I was so conflicted on that AG vote. This is now a I know, I Zephyr Teachout exactly podcast. What, exactly. I voted exactly. for Teachout because I wanted to make a statement, but I didn't think Teachout would win. And I was hoping that if Teachout didn't win, that James would. And when James did, I was like, you know what? Honestly, that's fine. She's going to be really good. Well, I wanted to know about whether James, when she joined, for people who aren't like New York politics, uh, you people, were worried she was going to be in Cuomo's pocket was because she ran about. on Cuomo's ticket, exactly. which went against right. all of her politics as public advocate. But that's the ticket that wins. It's New York State politics. Like it's unfortunate. But you know what? I'm thrilled that she was like, "Sure, take me with you," and then got him out. <laughs> <laughs> like she fucking she she was the one who truly did. Like she Wolverined. Andrew Cuomo. It like was, it was she, uh, like, like man. Wolverine fucking like. No, you know what she did? You know what she did? What'd she she did? was Emma Frost. Yes. Joining Norman Osborn's Dark X-Men, but acting yeah. as a double agent the entire time. That was Tish James. Anyway, we have to, we yeah. have to stop. Okay. We have to stop. We have to stop. We have to stop. So yeah, I hope that answered your question satisfactorily. I think it's a funny question. Like Hank votes Republican. I'll just give you that. Hank was so down for Mitt Romney. Hank thought McCain was the definition of a statesman. Absolutely. So, leave it at that. Lily Honor writes, Hi, Connor and esteemed guest. I have a question for the Charles Xavier episode. Do we know the timeline for the history of the Charles and Eric ship? As a younger fan who first got into X-Men through the movies, I also read a lot of Cherrick content on mid-2010's Tumblr. Was the ship popular before the movies or is it a more recent phenomenon? I also wanted to say I really appreciate the podcast and the Discord community. It's really helped me get back into the X-Men and the fandom after reading Hawks Pox. Listening to Cerebro was a nice serotonin boost while I was finishing my master's degree. It has also helped convert my girlfriend into an X-Men fan, Best Lily. Well, I love that for you. Also, congrats on your master's. Very much so. I did that. It was annoying. So I hope you're relaxing now. So this is a question for me because I don't think Spencer is like yeah, I'm afraid you know, that's, in the yeah. weeds on Slash fandom. So here's <laughs> what I'll say. If you go back to the nascent internet, you know, 90s and aughts, I would say, pre-movies and into the McKellen Stewart era movies, it was a popular ship with a very specific sphere of that fandom which would be like women in their 30s and 40s who liked writing about Charles and Eric's time together in Haifa, Charles and Eric circa fatal attractions stuff like that where they were clearly picking up what was being put down and it was sort of I would say a different fan base from like the kind of people who wrote Mulder and Crycheck Mm. but like maybe overlap with the fan base that wrote like Jim and Blair from the Sentinel That's an old people reference. That's like old even for me. So don't worry about it. I'm just saying it was around, but it wasn't as popular as like Wolverine and Cyclops or Gambit fucking literally anybody or (laughs) specifically Gambit and Iceman, which was a big thing, or Richter and Shatterstar. Those were sort of the big ones you would see around. And then obviously the second you cast James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender as the young versions in first class, then it exploded. Now it's just like a massive internet phenomenon to the point where talk show hosts have shown Fassbender and McAvoy gay erotic fan art on the air to get their reactions, which I always find kind of immature. But I loved that the reaction from, I think it was McAvoy was just like, that's quite good. It's very well done. 
Can I ask you about that? Yeah. What was the impact of Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen's casting? I would say that it energized the fan base that already kind of had existed for those two characters and expanded it. Like people who came in from the movies then encountered that because certainly Ian McKellen plays Magneto as gay in those movies. And you can therefore read that into their relationship very easily. So I do think that that pushed it further along. But I don't think that there were a lot of people... Like, I don't think that Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart in those movies got people, like, into a sexual frenzy. You get what I'm saying? Whereas I think that mm-hmm. once it was Michael Fassbender cries about the Holocaust and James McAvoy embraces him and they're in tracksuits, yeah. it was, like, a very different vibe, right? But I do think that much like Magneto's helmet protecting him against telepathy, which was invented in the movies, as we discussed, I think, on the Magneto episode way back when, the relationship between Charles and Eric, which starts in Claremont and obviously continues through the whole 90s, I think was really codified in the popular imagination by those movies in which McKellen is absolutely playing Magneto as like a gay spurned lover the whole time, which I think, yeah, did something to inform it. But the thing is like, Older characters like that are never going to get the same kind of fandom excitement. It's always a more niche audience. Like the most I've ever seen a fandom get really like into an older couple was Rosalind and Adama on Battlestar Galactica. Oh, that's a good one. Which is a really fucking good one. So I get it. So that I think answers that. And, you know, I don't think Spencer can really opine. So we're going to move on. But thank you for writing in. I'm here to learn. Travis White Schwach. I'm so sorry if I fucked that up. It's like very German. Travis writes, Hi, Connor. I'm a big fan of the podcast, which has rekindled my love of the X-Men. You inspired me to read classic New Mutants, which is quickly becoming one of my favorites. I'm halfway through the Nova Roma saga. Oh, my condolences. (laughs) And here's my question. What's the deal with Team America? Why is Charles super into them so much that he prioritizes training them over his newest adolescent students who are dealing with Sean's recent death? Does Charles have a hidden love of motorcycling? Is this what gave him the idea to sport a helmet 24-7 more recently? Most importantly, is Team America on Krakoa and is Charles still smitten with them. Thanks, Travis. You are shockingly not the first person who's asked me if I think Team America is on Krakow. <laughs> I hope so. They should do like an, a motocross show as like Dazzler can perform. It should be like a whole, should be a thing. What the deal is, is I have not a fucking clue. I have to imagine maybe they wanted to sell toys. Was it like a toy initiative? It's very weird. It's an extremely weird little episode in the saga of the New Mutants. <laughs> But I do think that Charles is impressed with extreme sports people always because, again, Charles was an athlete and his ruling resentment above all things is that he can't be an athlete anymore. I mean, notably, after Executioner's Song, when he has the ability to walk briefly because of the techno-organic virus that he was infected with, he's slowly becoming paralyzed again because they've cured the infection. The thing that he chooses to do is go rollerblading with Jubilee because hmm. he never got to rollerblade because right. they didn't have rollerblades yet. And that's what he wants to do is like he wants Jubilee to teach him how to rollerblade. It's a sweet moment, but it also like that is his thing. Like He wants to be swimming, running, jumping, doing all of this stuff. So I think that it makes total sense that he'd be like, these motorcycle people are the coolest because he would love to do BMX. 
Dylan from Washington writes, hi, Connor, and guest, do you find that Charles Xavier's hypocrisy, moral lapses, or otherwise general character faults are at this point an intrinsic part of the character? For a long time, I was only really familiar with the animated shows in the Fox movies, where he's largely a sort of kind grandfather figure like Dumbledore, Gandalf, or Mr. Feeny. To be honest, even in the Fox movies, he messed up with the Phoenix stuff in X3, but that's very much presented as being a mistake that he regrets, so I feel like the characterization is still consistently moral. When I eventually became a comic reader, I was really stunned to find that a large portion of the fandom viewed him as a real bastard, justifiably. Do you think adaptations of X-Men, be that the MCU, any animated series, video games, alternate universe stuff, whatever, should make an attempt to smooth that over and let us keep our Patrick Stewart father figure? Or have Xavier's ethical shortcomings become too important a part of the character? Is there a middle ground or a compromise? Thanks for keeping me sane throughout the pandemic, election, heat wave, and wildfires. Dylan from Washington. Thank you for writing in, Dylan. I think that it's always been the most interesting part of the character. I also think, though, that X3, this is actually what I like about X3, which is a bad movie, but has one really good thread through it, which is the Gene and Charles stuff, I think, is really good. Oh, this is the thing where he's like, I suppressed this thing that I called the Phoenix. Yeah, it's her Omega potential or whatever, and he sealed it behind blocks. It takes out the sci-fi element. The Phoenix becomes her suppressed personality that he's caged for all this time that part i don't like but the dynamic between them is really good and her absolutely killing the shit out of him is really good and i don't know if you saw the post credit scene in that movie but there's a whole bit at the beginning where moira mctaggart is explaining that this guy she's talking about who's a patient at her lab is in a vegetative state and is brain dead or something and it's mentioned what an ethical lapse it would be for someone to use his body. I, I haven't seen this movie literally since it came out, so you'll have to forgive me. But there's a whole bit about how it would be really vile to invade his body. And the post-credits scene is Xavier resurrecting himself in that guy's body Ooh. by jumping into it telepathically because he, when the Phoenix disintegrated him or whatever, he held on telepathically and sought out Moira and immediately jumped into this body that he knew was there. What? So, so he's Apocalypse? I mean, that's something, I mean, Emma does that. That's how, like when she's in her coma in the early 90s, that's how she winds up in Bobby's body. Like it's something we've seen telepaths do in the comics. But Emma's, Emma doesn't do I it on feel purpose. Like that's much different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, I'm saying that you can do that. But yes, no. In the in the end of that movie, Charles like body hops into someone and steals his body and like wakes up and Moira's like Charles, and that's it. Now, of course, this doesn't scan with First Class, where Moira is an entirely different character who's an American spy yeah. instead of a doctor. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Point is, I think that that movie actually presents him as very morally flawed, and they just drop it whenever we revisit the Patrick Stewart character. That never gets picked up on again, I think because Last Stand, there's a lot of complicated behind-the-scenes stuff with that movie that we don't want to get into because this is not a Fox X-Men movie franchise podcast. Thank God. I don't think you can write an interesting Charles Xavier without leaning into that, is I guess the point I'm trying to make. I think that it is what makes him boring in the 60s, that he's not challenged on any of this stuff. And I think that... It is how Claremont made him interesting. But even then, Claremont only pushed him so far. It really is sort of later writers, I would say, in the 90s and afterward. You can go too far. I've said, I think Deadly Genesis is awful. It doesn't work for me at all. But stuff like Tessa, stuff like Amelia Vote, 
stuff like that I think works really, really well. And I think that we should definitely do that because here's the thing. The comforting father figure, Charles Xavier, who is just a good guy, we should have outgrown that by now, right? And politically speaking, I don't think it's useful. I also think that telepathy is a ready-made metaphor for telling stories about freedom and consent and violation. Mm -hmm. Beware when a telepath is the leader basically. Yeah. Because you're going to put characters in circumstances where the ability, the thing that makes them, you know, super is most applicable in ways that are ethically harder and harder to justify, particularly as stakes increase. Like usually that's how you do it. The answer is typically like, Exigent circumstances were just so catastrophic that I had no choice but to, for instance, wipe Magneto's mind, Mm -hmm. right? And so it is really not just intrinsic to Charles's character, but I think quite possibly the only responsible way of dealing with one of these world historical self-appointed leader figures who is a telepath. I mean, I write about the surveillance state and its relationship to 21st century capitalism. Can you imagine what a Cerebro would mean in that context? Mm-hmm. Oh, do I have some ideas for uh, things you might want to do with that? That's sort of how you want a presentation of a character like Professor Xavier, especially when throughout the character history early, they're doing things like telling Storm she's not a god. Right. Right. Xavier's politics are, I'm editorializing, noxious, and it works like very well um, to critique those politics to show a kind of poison tree that the fruit grows out of. Actually, that leads me into a question I want to read. Great. So Tori writes, Hi, Connor. Just wanted to start by saying how much I love your podcast. As a queer ex-fan, I feel seen every time I listen to you and your guests dissect the history, inspirations, and politics of my favorite mutant characters with humor and flair. Thank you. I wanted to send in a question about Charles Xavier and the ethics of telepathy. While I currently stand S-tier telepaths Emma and Jean, as a physically frail gay kid, I found myself more closely identifying with Charles Xavier growing up, largely through the animated series. To be clear, I'm not paraplegic as Xavier was depicted to be in the 90s animated series, which was my entry point into the X-Men. But I was uncoordinated and weak and did not enjoy being the center of attention the way Jean and Emma so often are. Rather, I cast myself in a supporting role, much like the one Xavier has played, given how unsuited his powers are for direct confrontation. Thus did telepathy become my answer to the perennial, if you could have any superpower, what would you pick? Question. Maybe it also has something to do with being autistic, as I am, and constantly fascinated by the mysteries of other people's minds and wanting to be heard and understood without the imperfect medium of verbal speech. I'd be lying if I didn't also admit that the control element also appeals to me as well, unethical as it would be. All of this is a long preamble to my question. Is telepathy, particularly the mind-controlling type, an inherently unethical power? Or are characters like Xavier doomed to make ethical lapses because of the way the power changes the way they engage with the world? I'm thinking of the data page in Hellions that explains how Empath developed into the monster he is by virtue of the fact that his power all but engineered him to be a sociopath. Is it the same with telepaths like Xavier? And do we critique Xavier more harshly than someone like Emma or Jean, whose use of telepathy we might praise as yes-queen moments because they're strong, powerful women and arguably more likable than Xavier, who many now regard as something of a hypocrite. Since these powers are often the purview of villains, 
the Shadow King and Cassandra Nova being exemplars of that concept at its worst, I wonder if heroism and telepathy are inherently incompatible, or if this isn't something to be too concerned about given the graying morality of our times. Curious to get your take on this. All the best to you, your guest, and of course, she who speaks, Tori. Thank you for writing in, Tori. That's a really thoughtful, great question. I think that it is a tool like any other. And I think that it is a tool that is employed differently by different characters. I think that it brings out the worst in someone like Charles, who already thinks he knows best, and that his will is the will that should be carried out. Because now he has the ability to read what everyone else thinks and enforce his own will. And there are so many stories that reveal there's a Wolverine story, one that I really actually don't like, where it's revealed that Xavier did like a mind wipe on Wolverine before giant size number one. Like, Oof. there oh. are so many retcons. This is why we know Jean is slipping in the Dark Phoenix saga, because right. she does it to Carmen Pride. It's a power it's very easy to exploit for an abusive purpose, right? It's a power that is very easy to abuse. And I do think that it's notable that of the characters who are telepaths, who came in with telepathy as their main power, most of them are villains. You look at Emma Frost, that's a character whose heroic arc happened over a very long period of time. She was introduced as an example of just how terrifying this power is in the hands of someone with no moral compunctions. Tessa is another one introduced as a villainous character. Celine is telepathic, villainous character. The Shadow King you've mentioned, Cassandra Nova, is obvious. There aren't that many telepathic heroes in this franchise who didn't start out as villains. I'm thinking about, like, you know, I don't count Karma, for example. What about... Or Danny, Danny because I was they're say. not really telepaths in the same way, right? Their power is limited. They can't do those things. They can't rewrite people's brains. Karma also spends all of her time consumed with the question of whether her power is ethical at all. That's something that's on the page. It's clearly something Claremont's interested in. Jean and Xavier are the two heroic ones, and they are the two characters that are most corrupted and complicated over time by the narrative in terms of characters introduced as heroes. Rachel, who's introduced differently. She's introduced as a victim, an exploited yes. person, made to do villainous things. That's where I think it pivots, Yes, is Rachel. I think Rachel is the pivot point because what Rachel illustrates is specifically, it is a tool like any other any weapon is only as good or evil as the person using it because Rachel, as a hound, is someone who has been weaponized. Her weapon that is intrinsic to her against her will, because she has been brainwashed, is now forced to do these things that are awful, evil, genocidal. When she has her faculties back, she is a good, mostly, and benevolent, mostly, person. But it is always a power that is meant to make us suspicious. Around the same time, Betsy's introduced to the X-Men. Right. And Betsy is a character who, I've said this many times, including in like the very first episode, I think, but Betsy, as written in the 80s, is basically who Emma Frost is now, to some extent. Why can't we just kill him like Wolverine would have done? Logan's solution is just to kill him. That could work. She is cold. She is not sentimental. 
And she is not especially concerned with the moral boundaries of what her telepathy does. That is done specifically for two reasons. One is the team doesn't have a telepath anymore and they need one because X-Men stories at this point sort of rely on a telepath for communications, right? So she gets subbed in because Xavier's in space and Jean's in X-Factor. There's no telepath. I mean, and Jean isn't even telepathic at that point, but it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Point is, that's her functional role, but story-wise, she's also the character that the characters, and therefore us by extension, are somewhat suspicious of in terms of whether she's a good guy. That's a natural characterization to give to a telepath because they are someone who morally can be that suspect person. Monet in Generation X is, in many ways the antagonist of the student group, of the friend group. She's mean to Jubilee. She's rude to Husk. She is a telepath because it gives you a hauteur that goes with her wealth. I think it's also notable that most of the telepath characters tend to come from like money or a prestigious background. They have like an elegant sort of noble bearing. Betsy's an aristocrat. Emma's a Boston Brahmin. Charles is from old, old money in New York. These are characters who have, like, clout even without their power. So he needs people eternally. <laughs> yeah, well, what I'm saying is that in that way, it's a literalization of an Emma, I think, in this era now is a really good illustration of this. It's a literalization of the power people wield in social interaction. Well said. Emma's true power is being a rich white woman who's beautiful. That's Emma's power. She's a smart, beautiful, rich, white woman. There was a joke about this in Marauder. She was like, my true mutant power, my bank account. You know, it's like what they say about Batman. Like, Batman doesn't have a superpower, except he does. He's a billionaire. That's Batman's superpower. Telepathy in the X-Men is in some ways just, to go back to what we were talking about with Morrison again and Cassandra Nova and Sublime, it's a literalization of the will that someone like Xavier or like Emma Frost exerts on their social circle or on public opinion or on the political sphere through soft power, through intimidation and through guile and through politicking. I am not the kind of person who thinks that that kind of gamesmanship and politicking is inherently evil. I'm not. I'm also not as far left as my friend Spencer here, so he might have a different take on this than me. I'm interested for your take on this, Spencer, but that's my view. I think that it is presented very intentionally as the most corruptible power and the most morally suspect power but that it's not necessarily presented as something that will corrupt you. It's just something that will allow you to indulge your darkest instincts. And for some characters like Xavier and Jean and Emma in her Hellfire days, that's a very bad thing. Yeah, now I'm very curious if if I go back and read uh, Claremont New Mutants, if we'll see meaningful characterization, you would know this better than I would, of Emma teaching empath. She has trouble with him. That's the thing. So I am always of the position that Emma is actually a very good teacher, even when she's evil. And that that's one of the key things about her as a character. And that's why the thing that turns her good, so to speak, in her heel face turn is her students being murdered because she just can't cope with that. The idea that she failed as an educator specifically, that she failed to protect these kids. She is closer with the girls and Jetstream 
the girls in particular, Tara Roulette, Cat's Eye, those are sort of, I mean, she adopts Cat's Eye essentially because Cat's Eye has no parents. So Cat's Eye is basically like her, I mean, it's a parallel to Moira and Rain that's very explicit on the page is that like, this is Emma's foster daughter who's an animal. And then Rain and Cat's Eye become friends. That's a character I really would like to see come back, actually. I agree. I think while Vita Ayala is salvaging the mess that was made of Rain Sinclair for 30 years, it would be cool to throw Cat's Eye in there because their relationship was always really interesting. And Zev is writing the best empath ever. Well, yeah. So that's the thing is empath is always the character. Like Emma also gets along fine with Jetstream, who is the cannonball analog. All of the Hellions have sort of a direct analog on the New Mutants, right? It's wonderful. It's so Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, it's great. It's like, here's magic and she's fighting tarot. Wolfsbane and Cat's Eye. Here's Wolfsbane, she's fighting Cat's Eye. Here's Danny, she's fighting Thunderbird. Here's Cannonball. He's fighting Jetstream, who has the same power as Cannonball, but it makes his body explode. So he had to get turned to a cyborg. <laughs> Karma and Empath, yeah. Karma and Empath are obviously, yeah, the other connection. And then Magma hops teams. Like, she can't decide who she right. likes, right? Yeah, Bobby's actually the only one who doesn't really have one. Like, Bobby and Cypher, I guess Roulette is sort of both of theirs, right? Because, like... I guess, yeah. She has, like, a Beto-type personality, but then she and Doug are the ones with powers that don't help protect them in combat, especially, so they have to kind of hang back, and then they have that flirtation. Anyway, all that to say, Empath is the one that she has trouble with. He's the problem child from the very beginning. All of the other students hate him because he's a sociopath who torments them relentlessly. She's not a fan, is I guess what I'll say. <laughs> I think just in, in regards to the question, I don't really disagree with a lot of what you said. It is a power that, as we were discussing earlier, just provides too much of a useful narrative tool to explore this, as you put it, literalization of, of how power works, you know, amongst people and amongst dynamics, and as well how power once so literalized is nowhere ever as literal as with wealth. Right. Like that really is power. And as long as you would say, like, the way I was thinking about this is, as I was listening to your answer, was that unless there's someone I'm really mistaken... I'm really just forgetting right now. I don't think we have a Morlock telepath. Well, so not quite. Who do we have? Who am I forgetting? Annalie and Beautiful Dreamer both have powers that could be construed as telepathic, but they can't read minds like that in that way. Like they're not overtly telepathic in that way. Okay, so they would have no ability to like manipulate people into amassing the sort of wealth. No, um, that not you really. Can use while literalizing Charles. They have to work really, really yeah. fucking hard. So I think there's, there's something valuable about that circumstance, but at the same time, telepathy shouldn't be understood as a fast track to degrading other people. It's a temptation to stop. You know, we see lots of heroic applications of telepathy constantly. Telepathy for communications, yeah. for instance. You know, Tom Taylor's X-Men Red. We see Jean really use her telepathy in, in very heroic ways. Applications of telepathy for things like communications, things like ensuring there's a tactical ability to communicate or as well a way to stop people's aggression without causing undue harm. Like all the times that you've seen this happens in Krakoa, I, I think I'm pretty sure, where like Gene or another telepath will just tell people, you know what, go to sleep. Right. Go take a nap and stop being evil. Stop doing evil stuff. 
My favorite telepathy moment in House of X Powers of Ten is in the Sabretooth scene, which is interesting for all kinds of reasons, but specifically when he's mouthing off and Gene and Emma both in a row go quiet and they telepathically silence mm. him, but they both do it. It's quiet, quiet. It's a really good moment from both of them because they are very different women, but this is one respect in which they are the same, which is that they have no compunction about telepathically saying quiet. To bring it back to Charles for a moment, I think what's distinct about him is how often we see him on panel either A, denying what he's doing in terms of manipulation, B, as in Uncanny 309, initially deny, even to the point of lying to himself about having done it, or C, as with the Carrie X-Men legacy, say that he was justified or that it was an exception to the way he typically behaves. And that's where I think we can see Xavier using his telepathy basically as a way to be the worst version of himself and not consider that, in fact, other people truly do have agency in what he's done, that he does it so frequently as to become a habit and that this is not an exception from Xavier's otherwise virtuous behavior this defines xavier's behavior and creates a shadow around whatever virtuous actions he accomplishes i think that's wise i think that's exactly right it's a question that we are meant to ask yes Arjun Singh writes, Hello, Connor and Spencer. First of all, I'd like to say I'm really excited for this episode. The Beast and Magneto episodes are my favorite episodes of the show because of how they explore the politics of mutant kind and the in-universe political ramifications of Krakoa. I'd also like to thank Connor for this show. As listening to it has made me a huge fan of X-Men, and I'm currently reading the Grant Morrison new X-Men books, which I'm loving. I read the entire first volume of their run in one day. It's amazing. It really is, right? It is. So fucking good. I'd also like to comment on the Larry Bodine issue that you discussed all the way back in the Kate Pride episode with Dr. Stephanie Burt. I'm a survivor of my own suicide attempt, and I'd like to see Larry be resurrected on Krakoa. I believe that him coming back in an environment as safe for mutants as Krakoa is would be something really interesting to see. From my point of view, I'd like to see him get a chance to live as a mutant without being afraid for his life. I think it's something that Xavier has sort of promised all mutants around the world, that Krakoa is somewhere where you will be safe. Well, thank you for writing in about that. That is something I've mentioned that you know, I, I know that a lot of people feel different ways about that story. I tend to agree with you on that one. But, you know, I get why it would be tricky. I personally think it would be a story worth telling. Getting to my question about Xavier, I'd like to ask if there's someone who you think Xavier would entrust with the secret of Moira X. Personally, I think he'd trust Sage, since she's his oldest student, a perfect spy, and also her ability to multitask and partition her brain to do different things would allow her to not be overwhelmed by it to some extent. What do you think, though? Would Xavier trust someone else with the secret of Krakoa as a breaking case of emergency glass to make sure that Krakoa's secrets stay alive in some way, should something happen to him, Moira, or Eric? Thanks. I look forward to listening to this show as it goes on. With all due respect, Arjun Singh. That is a great question. I tend to think that they have not told anyone. And here's why. Because I think Gene clearly does not know. And I think if there was anyone that Xavier was going to tell, it would be Gene. Definitely Gene. I mean, he told Gene that he was faking his own death in the 60s. It's a retcon. But like she knew the whole time. Gene is the person he tells. When you go to the Xavier Protocols, which is a plot from the Onslaught era where it turns out that Batman style, Xavier has a file on every single one of the X-Men and how to kill them. 
in order to activate it, you go into the basement of Moira's facility in Muir Island and you need three individuals to be standing in the room and then they're like telepathic signatures will activate the message. And it's the different three people depending. Like for Cable, it's Scott, Gene, and Cannonball mm. to unlock that one. But for his own, to unlock how do you kill Charles Xavier, it's Scott, Gene, and Moira. Oh, wow. And I think that that is a really telling moment that Scott and Gene are his, like I said, Hank is ideologically his most loyal child, but he doesn't love Hank the way that he loves Scott and Gene. He never has. That's the bottom line. If Scott and Gene don't know, and I emphatically don't think that they do, and if Gene in particular doesn't know, which I emphatically don't think that she does, then I don't think anybody does. Like, I think Gene knew about Tessa. That's how much I think, like, that's my hot take on whether anyone knew about Sage. I think that Gene did. Because I think that that's what that high Sage moment yes, in Mystery at the Mansion gonna... is about. So that's my takeaway. I think Emma may have figured it out. I think that the unveiling of the statue and the hospital and all of that in front of them feels like she's testing them. I think Emma may suspect, at the very least, that something in the water with Moira isn't clean in terms of what she's been told. But I don't think anybody else knows. Except for Opaluna Saturnine. Your read as a matter of like the way the text operates, I think is is unassailable. In terms of who I think he would tell, the only thing I would disagree with is I I, I think he would tell Hank probably before he would tell Gene for two reasons. Now maybe yes, yeah. One precisely because Xavier is a manipulator. He recognizes that it is a powerful tool for him to withhold love for Hank that Hank will do more for him in that way. And by the flip side of the same coin, Gene is just frankly too powerful. You run a risk. Telling Gene anything when she can outclass you as a telepath is a dangerous choice for him to make. But that's, I think, why it's significant that he does it so often. Yeah, I, I kind of, I agree with Arjun that Tessa is a live possibility, but he would tell Tessa and fuck up by telling Tessa. That's what I'm saying is, yeah. if Tessa knows, we're going to find out in Inferno because it's going to be a mistake that they told her. Yes, totally. <laughs> not because she's not good at her job, but because despite what Xavier thinks of her and why he sent her to be his spy doing his dirty work instead of letting her be an X-Man, she is more moral than he is, than Hank is than Gene is, in my opinion. So that's the that's my takeaway there. Here's my just shooting from the hip wild prediction. If Sage knows, that's how Emma's going to find out. I just want to also say, Arjun, as someone who knows something a little bit about what you've shared, that you're a very brave person for choosing to live. I agree. And thank you for sharing this with us thank also, you very much because that's also brave. That. George Park writes, Hi, Connor, and whichever excellent, extravagant expert is joining you to tackle Professor, I really questioned his PhDs and teaching qualifications X. There was no obvious X joke there. Sorry. I'm a British northerner. If you're fancying, if you're fancying doing an accent, also sorry for the essay I have written here. I don't think I can do northern. That's really hard. Frankly, British listeners will probably say I can't do any of them, but I think there are others I could do better than I could do northern. That seems really hard, so I'm not going to try particularly, but thank you for letting me know. Mancunian, yeah. I always like when I'm when I'm told these things. I'm just picturing like the girls from Towie and like I can't quite, I think I would embarrass myself more than I usually do. So I'm going to hold up. Anyway, 
Firstly, Connor, the obligatory love the podcast and hearing what you and your guests have to say about all the weird, wonderful, and fabulous of the mutant world. I don't know a lot of people that talk comic books, especially X-Men, so having this podcast is my guilty pleasure is great. There is nothing guilty about listening to this podcast, George. Listen to the podcast. Be happy about it. George asked a couple of questions, but this is the one that we haven't covered yet, which made me laugh. How does Charles get laid when he's such a dick to people? The Marvel Wiki labels five women, Amelia Vogt, Moira McTaggart, Terry Martin, and the Shi'ar Princess Lalandra Naramani as his relationships. All of these relationships failed, and basically it was all his fault. And he has children he's not been the best to, yet he decides to open a school for several generations of not students, but child soldiers. Do you think Charles's inability to be a partner or father led to the X-Men? Or are the X-Men just another case of Charles's inability to connect to people in ways that aren't necessarily beneficial for anyone other than himself and his dream? Thank you for all your research, hard work, and hours of entertainment and keep up the good work yours george park i think it's the latter that yeah. that's exactly it that he doesn't it's his nature yeah like he names them the x-men it's an amazing cool name it's one of the greatest things ever he claims that that's not why they're called the x-men you're called the x-men because you have extra power and it's like okay charles uh, you're calling yourself professor x Professor X, which is also, we just need to get this out of the way, simply one of the coolest names in comics. Oh. Professor X just, it's perfect. Awesome. Awesome. Anyway. Yeah, no, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's the latter. As for how he gets laid, he's very rich. I think yeah. that doesn't hurt. Also, he is like a good looking guy. Like, we know this to be true. Like, it's been commented upon that he's like a good looking guy. He's just bald. He's charismatic. Who knows yeah. how much that's manipulating? Right. But look, he says three panels of stuff to Storm, and Storm's like, okay, I'll go with you. But I love that in House of X, when we see Moira's first meeting with him in her previous life, she's like, what a fucking dick. Like, she can't <laughs> stand it. That's really funny. The idea that she had to come around to him is very funny. And also, I think if we are to interpret the Dear John letter thing as still being legit, then the idea is by that point, like they knew their game plan, but she was just like, honestly, Charles, I can't really do the romance anymore. It's driving me fucking crazy. Like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. bye bye. We can be friends. Talk to you in the lab. I know that if we don't unite, we all die, but we don't have to be banging. Right. Exactly. Like, it should be a business thing, I think, you and me, you know? You're a great guy, but you suck to date. Also, you're not a great guy. I don't know why I said that, because you're not. So, you know, I think it was that kind of conversation. Well, Moore is very often not a great guy. So well, particularly well, so. now. I mean, I love God. I can, I'm so excited for Inferno. Like, I know. Destiny versus Moira, the Greek for Destiny, is like, it's such a stupid but perfect. Like, that's so X-Men. But, like, Destiny's <laughs> opposite number is fate. That's what Moira means. Look it up. It's Greek. You've said it on the podcast. I've said it I before. Learned it. I learned it from you. Yeah. Well, the Moirai are the fates. Spencer Graham writes, Dear Connor and Spencer, back at it again with another voice question. Spencer, if Magneto sounds like Bernie Sanders, which politician does Charles sound like? Sincerely, Spencer Graham, a.k.a. Perb. Damn, that's good. Um, I want to say FDR. That sounds right to me, too. I can't. I can't really do. I can't do it. Sorry. Yeah, no, I'm it's not, a I'm very this specific is, thing. This is too upstate for me. <laughs> <laughs> Great question, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam Chris writes, if Charles was established as being bi or gay or queer now, do you feel that would be progressive or does he have too much morally ambiguous baggage to be a diversity win? Best wishes, Samuel. So... Here's my take on that as, like, the gay person in the podcast right now. I don't 
care that much about whether something is a diversity win in the sense of like, is this character a role model? That's not what goes into it with me, which I realize sounds a little contradictory because I said earlier that Xavier is not always like a good disability politics character, but that's, you know, so now I'm rethinking that, honestly. But my point is just, I think it's important to have queer characters who suck <laughs> just as much as it is to have queer characters who are good people. I think if Charles and Eric's relationship was literalized on the page, that would be a win because I think it would be a massive sea change in how people read 60 years of storytelling in a way that has always, I think, been there, certainly since the 80s. I think it would be a win even if he sucks as a person individually. But do I think they would? No. Personally, I don't think it's necessary and I think that Charles and Eric's relationship is already understood to be homoerotic by so much of the wider world. Like, people make jokes about it all the time. So I don't think it needs to be literalized for you to see, for example, the obvious parallelism of Charles and Eric refusing to resurrect Raven's wife. I mean, I think that we're meant to infer there. I mean, they wore a couple's costume to the Hellfire Gala. They certainly did. You know? These men are married. <laughs> These men love each other on a bond so deep that can really only be called historical. I don't even think, I think at certain points it really surpasses romantic love. You know, when that romantic love manifests itself, it manifests in terms of seeing each other in a way that no one else can see them. Mm -hmm. They can't be discussed individually. That's how deep their bond is. They can only be discussed together in contradistinction. They are one another. I mean, I think like, you know, Onslaught is a terrible idea. It's a, it's a concept that just absolutely sucks, but at least it captures that. Mm -hmm. That these are characters that lose themselves in important ways without one another. Right, and if they literally could come together and fuse... I mean, the thing about Onslaught that is kind of interesting is that the fusion of their minds is so powerful that it is universally destructive. Yes. That, I think, is worth noting. It's not a cosmic force like the Phoenix. It's something that they create out of their love and hate working in concert. I'm really interested to see what Sai does with it in this one shot in September, honestly. Francisco Requejo writes, Hello, Connor and Spencer. Greetings from Buenos Aires and congratulations on reaching the landmark 50th episode. Well, gracias. Thank you. I appreciate that. Do you think there was a point in time, maybe around the Utopia era, that the ex-office decided Xavier's dream was never going to come to fruition because humans will always try to exterminate mutants and started to change the focus of their stories? If this change happened, where do you think the change in ideology came from? When House of X launched, I was surprised how easily the X fandom, myself included, accepted the failure of the dream and the change to the current status quo. Thank you very much, and congratulations again, Francisco. So it's complicated. I think there were different editorial forces at play here. I think the intent in the Utopia era was that Scott was going too far, pushing too hard into militarism and into separatism. Certainly Gillen has said, and Kieran's a friend of mine, I happen to just, you know, this wouldn't have been how I would have done it. He said that he wrote it, and I don't know how much this was his idea, I don't know how much it was, again, leading toward AVX and all of that, as Scott and Emma morally slipping further and further and becoming more villainous characters. I think Bendis sees Cyclops' separatism as correct. And in the Bendis era, I yes. think that's where the shift happens because 
the Avengers books are still very much positioning Cyclops as like, he's become a radical terrorist extremist now. The Bendis books, I think, are very unambiguous about Cyclops being in the right in terms of the schism. So that's, I think, the pivot point. But I think it's fully eradicated in House of X. I think it really is Hickman who was just like, enough of this. Because if you go back to that Bendis era Cyclops, Xavier was dead, right? Because Cyclops kills him in AVX. If you go back a little bit earlier than that to Utopia, which leads up to that moment in AVX, Charles is the one who's like, Eric has become his mentor. He's listening to Emma all the time. He doesn't want to listen to me. This seems bad. I don't know if he's doing the right stuff. Charles is the one who objects most strenuously before the schism, when Wolverine objects really strenuously to the direction Scott is taking the mutant population politically. So... What's different about House of X is that Charles has been Eric-pilled, essentially, at this point. Ah! Here's what I think it is. I think that after he died and then came back and then observed the state of things, he realized that he really tried his best to do what he thought was the right answer. He has now accepted what Moira told him many years ago, which was that what he wants won't work. And that what she wants is what will work. And she's also convinced Eric of that. Because here's the thing that's important to remember. It's not just Charles who's compromised in this project, right? Eric has compromised. Emma has compromised. Apocalypse compromised. Sinister, although he's doing all kinds of stuff they don't know about, has at least appeared to compromise. Exodus has compromised. All of these people have made compromises to create a society they can all agree is at least approaching what they view as ideal or just. Got to go through socialism to have communism. That is certainly one way of looking at it, yeah. <laughs> but I think those are the two pivot points are those two moments. I think that the other thing is that the reason that in the Utopia era, Scott isn't listening to Charles is because of the one-two punch of deadly genesis and messiah complex where he was forced to act without Charles for a while, but also he was already completely disgusted with Charles because of the revelations of Deadly Genesis. I think after Deadly Genesis, it's really hard for any reader to accept Charles as someone who should be the arbiter of what people do or like of any kind of moral or political decision. The work that's done in that era by Mike Carey in Legacy is to make you care enough about Xavier again that you care when he dies in ABX, right? Like that is the real accomplishment of that book. But I think that's when he starts to get outmoded as a figure entirely. And then the dream rears back up after AVX when he's dead. As that moved on, though, Bendis, I think, led the charge on, but wait, this style of minority politics is very old-fashioned and isn't really resonant with the liberatory movements that are going on now. I'm not going to be very good at identifying, like, the storylines that start to, you know, function as a lever to pivot mm -hmm. the dream, but I think there are two things. First, you know, to go back to what we said right at the top, X-Men is a story whose ethical boundaries are always mediated from the beginning. We're oriented to them by Charles Xavier. That's kind of our firmware. Mm -hmm. And the characters in this story bounce off of that, rebel against it, expand it, change it. But as well, the inherent contradiction 
of Xavierism is that it's an assimilationist movement with assimilationist ethics that is also functionally a mutant cult separatist community with a paramilitary yeah to include child soldiers lots of people just don't leave the mansion and when they don't leave the mansion to the point where like can you imagine like i'm just imagining like my wife and children Mm -hmm. like being in the mansion with everyone else's families children siblings and so forth and like we're just supposed to kind of accept that but it makes sense because the world is so fucking dangerous for mutants and once we recognize that contradiction that what sanctuary xavier offers is not in fact temporary is not a school from which you graduate and then you know know how to move as a mutant in a world dominated by humans then the collapse of the dream is really kind of at hand because you have to recognize that from an assimilationist perspective, these things really can't be reconciled. Right. And so accordingly, people have to kind of reinterpret the dream. And that, of course, goes back to what we were saying about how the dream orients all of the X-Men's moral universe. And we're seeing now what happens when we just say, we don't need to do that shit anymore. Like, it doesn't have to operate along Xavier's boundaries. So I kind of think like that seed at the start is what sort of i'm gonna mix metaphors here that thread from the start unravels the sweater and it's just a question at that point of like how many threads have to come out before the sweater is unraveled discord moderator justin park writes hi connor and spencer i know this is cutting it extremely close so i understand if it doesn't make it i just wanted to take a moment to say that the magneto episode is one of my favorite episodes of all time i especially wanted to thank spencer for inspiring the discord server which has truly been one of the few things helping me to get through these shitty and unprecedented times Connor did all the work. I did, and part of me resents you foisting this responsibility onto me. However, it is a lovely space, and I'm happy to have created it. I just stress sometimes about what I've created. But I have a really great mod team, thankfully, which includes Justin. So thank you for being great at what you do. I mean, if we're being all the way 100 about this, I have to say that that might have been, in the context of our friendship, my Charles Xavier moment. I think it was, yeah, yeah. And I just went with it. You just reached out with your mind and influenced me. It's fine. I really do love that little community. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't like mine and I didn't feel responsibility for it, I wouldn't get anxiety about it. But <laughs> I'm glad it exists and I'm glad everybody's having fun. And you should join if you're listening and you think you might like to chat with people, but don't bring any bad vibes. We also have the Discord to thank or blame for inspiring the following question. In the context of Magneto and Xavier as unicorn hunters, with Moira, Namor, Amelia Vogt, Gabrielle Haller, Emma Frost, but just for the children, etc., who would you say should be their next target? Thanks so much, Justin. So if Charles and Eric just liked someone's vibe from across the bar, who should it be next, do you think? I mean, you know this about me, but it's in the question. It's got to be Namor. That's the answer. I, like, like I'm, I'm also a Namor superfan. Yeah. I have an embarrassing amount of like stuff in my Namor collection. I've read your Namor pitch. It's good. I've read my Namor pitch. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't know if we ever actually have talked about it. So thank you. I'm, I'm gratified to hear that. Just putting that out into the airwaves. Wonderful. I love There's it. There's a Namor pitch and it's good. I love it. I don't really have much more to say about that. Like I want to see these three men fuck. I mean, big same. So <laughs> yeah. What do you, what do you th- what do you think? Who would be their third if not for Namor? No, that's my answer also. Oh, okay, great, great, okay. Justin Jordan writes, Hello, Connor and his amazing guest. I'm the guy who sent my question via video format on Twitter. Hopefully this email finds you well and makes some time. Thank you for emailing. I added this whole thing myself and I am challenged technologically. 
Throughout the years, Charles and Magneto have been compared to MLK and Malcolm X. I've always found the comparison reductive and think it reduces MLK to the nice one. To me, assembling a group of five white teens from good neighborhoods to be the model minority is nothing like the values that MLK actually stood for. So long story short, my question is, is the comparison actually a good comparison? Does it even hold up under today's scrutiny? And why do you think they're still compared to this day? Love the podcast. Congrats on 50 episodes, Justin. So this is a very easy question to answer, not in terms of the depth we could go into with it, but the answer is no, it's a specious, stupid, terrible comparison. I frankly think it's pretty offensive because Charles Xavier is the white moderate, which is like, yes. you know, there's that famous quote. Like, Read letter from a Birmingham yeah, jail. Like, <laughs> like, like the white moderate who is a danger to social progress is literally Charles Xavier. So the comparison, I think, is pretty offensive. It also is a pretty offensive comparison to compare 60s Magneto to Malcolm X, which I've said on the show before. Yep. But while we're talking about Xavier, that's the problem with the comparison there. Why do I think it gets made all the time? I think it's... White bullshit. Yeah, I think, frankly... White bullshit. People pointed it out. Stan Lee thought, ooh, that's cool. I was being prescient. <laughs> Which, like, he hadn't ever made that comparison himself. So, And then he started saying, like, well, of course, we were inspired by the civil rights movement. And, like, I love, you know, listen, Stan Lee's a showman, and he always leaned into the story, and I fully applaud that on a marketing level. He was truly a genius at that. But yeah, I think it's mostly white people who propagate this idea, and I don't think that it holds up under any scrutiny whatsoever. Their politics don't scan onto those figures. Claremont's even said that he was going with Menachem Begin and David Ben-Gurion, and even then, it's not really... Like, the Menachem Begin and Magneto thing, I think, scans in terms of the Claremont Magneto. Much closer. Much closer, yeah. In terms of, like, the way Claremont clearly regarded those two figures... But I think with Xavier, it's, again, kind of a specious comparison. Basically, it's stupid. I will say, the other times you see it, and this I understand, because this makes sense to me, I have seen sometimes Black readers bring it up to educate people on the reality of the civil rights movement. Like, so you like mm. the X-Men, here's what was actually going on. That, I think, is reasonable, and that, I think, is something intended. We are intended to take away racism is bad from the X-Men. That is something you're absolutely supposed to take away. So on that level, you know, let's compare the mutant struggle to the civil rights movement. That I think can be potentially useful. I just don't think that comparing Xavier to Martin Luther King makes any sense, particularly accepting that they were both leaders of their movements. That's right. I feel really confident that people who would compare Malcolm X and Magneto like, just haven't read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Yeah, or the 60s Magneto content. They haven't read either. That one's just goofy on its face. But that's down to white perception of these two figures, historically. Not actually historically, very recently. The idea in our culture now, since, like, MLK Day was established, that MLK is the nice one, and Malcolm X is the one who thought violent solutions were acceptable— that is very much how white people have glossed those two men who are both dead and can't speak for themselves, right? But especially to rob Malcolm X of his legitimacy, white people have made him into a supremacist in the same way that I think they've approached Magneto that way. Yes, and to rob MLK of his sharper edges and make him sort of a sainted figure that white people can point to as the right way to do things. I mean, you know, anyway, right. we're white. This is not really like something I want to belabor because I don't think we're saying anything that black listeners don't already know. And haven't said better. And haven't said better than we can. But to answer the question affirmatively on the Charles Xavier episode, in case you're listening to this episode in isolation, it is a terrible comparison. It doesn't work at all. And people should stop doing it. 
Marcus Chase writes, Hi, Connor and guest. Is there a positive future for this character, even though his political ideology was basically refuted in House of X? Should X-Men be renamed F-Men after Emma Frost because her ideology is the only one that seems to get results? Thanks, Marcus Chase. That is funny to me. I think F-Men would probably not (laughs) go over well as a rebrand, but I do think that Emma... I mean, this is the thing. I think that capitalism does get results, right? The question is, like, what are the costs of it? But I think Emma's approach certainly works. You came here to start this violence? Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying... It certainly gets certain results. Anyway, well, yeah, I'm yeah, not, yeah, no, I know, I know. It gets know, the know, results she wants. That's the results when you're talking about what you want, right? Zach Wilson writes, Hey, Connor. Hey, Spencer. Spencer, welcome back. I'm super pumped for this episode. Beast and Eric's episodes are some of my faves. And as a Gentile and generally religiously illiterate person in a town with a very small Jewish population, I also learned some stuff about Hanukkah. Anyway, do you think Chuck resents the other telepaths whose telepathy didn't push their hair out of their heads? Do you think that's why he's such a jerk? <laughs> Thanks a bunch of toodaloo. That is one of the funniest things about Xavier's origin stories. It's explained he went bald as a teenager because his mind powers were so great. That's what he says anyway. And then it's like, why hasn't Jean's hair fallen out? Right. Charles, she's a better telepath than you. And that's just like, you know, they didn't think about it at the time. It's a throwaway line from the 60s. But it is funny to think that he just had like partial alopecia and blamed it on his telepathy. To go back to the disability versus mutancy thing. Mm -hmm. Like if his mutant power did it, that's fine. If it's like something that's quote unquote wrong with him, then that's something he would have a problem with. Kate writes, hi, Connor and Spencer, no preamble needed. Which three to five characters should be first in line to punch Xavier for what he's done to them? Thanks, Kate. (gasps) You go first. Uh, Okay, ordinal ranking, uh, Magneto. Okay. Uh, Straight up, uh, Storm. Okay. Then it's real hard. Then I guess Amelia. Okay, I'm going to go with Sage first. Number oh, one. Right. Yeah, Shit. no, it's fine. It's fine. There's no, so listen. many. It's a long There's so line. many. We're it's only hard, three. Right? I yeah. know, right. I'm going to say Sage, Legion. Oh, yeah. Well, no, there's no wrong answers. Your answers are also good. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Sage, Legion, and, and Gene, honestly. Like, you know that I'm not always a Gene sympathizer, but I do think that Dark Phoenix is his fault. And that is the mm-hmm. thing that she's going to have to live with for the rest of her fucking Like, it's also her fault. And it's also Mastermind's fault. And it's also Emma's fault. It's a lot of people's fault. But she did it with her own hands, right? Or you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Metaphorical hands. And it's because he taught her poorly. Also, just to round out four and five, Petra and Sway. They should just go for it. (laughs) I don't think Magneto would ever actually hit Xavier though. No. I think that's, it's not, he'll, 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 well, they fight in like a battle. Yeah. But, but I think like it is in fact too tender a relationship for Magneto to actually physically, like put his hand into a fist and punch Professor Xavier in a way that he would not think twice about doing that to anyone else. Mm-hmm. Sam Guido writes, Hi, Connor and Spencer. I've always been fascinated by the wildly different relationships Xavier has with his students. Some of them, like Gene and Scott, view him as a father figure. Other students who come to him more fully formed see him as a mentor or even an intellectual equal. What Xavier says at Nightcrawler's funeral has always stuck with me. Of all my students, I taught him the least and learned from him the most. Another moment that demonstrates how differently Xavier interacts with different students is at the end of Executioner's song when Jubilee convinces him to try roller skating. I don't think Professor X would ever have opened up to Kitty or one of the new mutants like that. My question for you is, what do you think are Xavier's most interesting teacher-student relationships, and what do they tell us about Xavier as a person? Love the Discord and the pod. The Beast and Magneto episodes are two of my favorites, so I'm really looking forward to your combo about Xavier. Sam. Thank you so much, Sam. I do kind of disagree about Kate. I think, like, one of my favorite 
Xavier in the mansion as headmaster of the school moments is, and unfortunately I didn't get a chance to reread it before this conversation, but is Professor Xavier is a jerk, where Mm -hmm. Kate basically shows Xavier that it's not necessarily that, like, Xavier doesn't know what he's doing, but that, like, Xavier is wrong and there are better ways of approaching the pedagogy but at the same time, it is also reflecting the way in which Kate is learning from Professor X. Mm-hmm. That really is a, like a powerful moment where like you really do get the school element out of it kind of at its best, where like it isn't this kind of sterile, like those of us who went to public school, particularly those of us who were probably younger than me, who went to public school in the era after No Child Left Behind, we're not talking about this kind of sterile environment where like you're learning how to pass a test. Instead, you're learning how to challenge your teaching. You're learning how to think critically and you're learning how to operate those critical thinking skills. And I think that really is a good one in a way that, like, it's not really good with, like, Danny Moonstar. Mm-hmm. Well, I think with Danny, in part because of Danny's personality, where she's not really interested in being condescended to ever in any way. Right. And also his pre-existing relationship with her actual parents and grandfather who are people he knows there's something of a distance there a respectful distance i don't think it's that he doesn't like really care about danny because i think he does but i think that they never form as tight a bond as he has with kitty because while kitty is a little bit bratty and you know professor xavier's a jerk and this and that she's much more in need of like a parent because her parents are so disconnected right and like she's the only one when she's there It's like Jubilee with the roller skates. Like when he Mm -hmm. only has one teenage student to worry about, he bonds with them a lot more closely. I was going to say, I think that the most interesting teacher-student relationship that he has, apart from ones that we've already talked about, like Gene and Hank and Sage and Scott, is actually his relationship with Storm. We talked about it a little already, but I wanted to reemphasize it because I loved the way she was written in S.W.O.R.D. when she met with Doom. Oh, yeah. When Al Ewing had her say, of course we have much to learn. After all, we have always been a school. It does feel like that's an ethos she's carried with her in a way that not everyone else has. I don't think that the school aspect is really what Scott and Jean necessarily think about. You know what I mean? Certainly not what Hank thinks about, and Tessa has a lot more going on. She was never allowed in the school in the first place. Storm is a character who Charles plucked her very deliberately out of her context, out of her cultural context, out of her life that she had, trained her in the use of her powers, and named her leader of the X-Men. You know, as soon as Scott left, there was no question to him as to who the leader should be. He was like, it's Sororo. And in part, that's obviously because she's Claremont's favorite character, but it's also because the arc is earned. Mm -hmm. You can tell that she is the student he is most impressed with, and she is the one who does, I think, outstrip him as a leader of the X-Men in a way Cyclops up to that point does not. Once Storm is in control, Xavier becomes more and more marginalized because she is a better leader than he is. She is more moral, she is more clear-eyed, and she is more pragmatic all at once. Also, the X-Men, particularly after Giant Size, the X-Men don't 
want to follow Cyclops. Right. And they all want to follow Storm. Storm really is their leader. Yeah. To the point where when she gets depowered and leaves the team for a while, they don't know what the fuck to do with themselves. Charles, that's when he's been cloned and can walk for the first time in the story, is like, I'll lead and battle myself without Storm. And it turns out it's a fucking disaster. And so he's like, hey, uh, Nightcrawler, you want to turn at this? And Nightcrawler does his best, but it's not a role he feels super secure in either. Storm is the one, really. And I do think that now Cyclops, after the Bendis evolution, is there as well. But I think that, at least in the Claremont period, the point is that Charles is not the leader the X-Men need, and Scott, for all his good intentions, is not the leader the X-Men need. Aurora is the leader the X-Men need. That is my takeaway from Claremont's run over the course of those 16 years. One final pedagogical point, and I think you're right about all of that, of course, is that like, how many X-Men do we think Charles Xavier can name? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, we see again and again throughout their character histories when mutant kids die. Yeah. Emma is shattered. Right. Magneto is shattered. Right. And Charles can find a way to move on. Charles is like, which Guthrie was that? Right. <laughs> so many of them. In terms of who he can name, there's a very specific cutoff, actually, I think. And the cutoff is literally... Chuck Austin's X-Men. Okay. I think if you were not added to the X-Men team, the formal X-Men team before that, you are not someone he can remember. And even then, there are some people I bet he forgot. Like, he forgot about Revanche, I bet. He was like, oh yeah, forgot that happened. I bet that he does not remember Neil Shara's name or like Maggot. Who's Maggot? I forget. Who's Dr. Nemesis? Chamber? No idea who that guy is. Stacy X? (laughs) In one ear, out the other. Lifeguard? He never met Lifeguard. So that's what I'm saying. Like, there are some characters where, yeah, it would fall out. But I think up through, like, North Star, Husk, Juggernaut. Obviously, he knows Juggernaut's name. Uh, So, like, those are, I think, the last ones where he would be able to be, like, that person right there. And now, of course, like, he knows who Hope is. Like, there are characters who came there. I bet he knows who Pixie is. Like, there are some. But you know that when someone like Boom Boom shows up, he's just like, is that Boom Boom or Skids? Right, totally. He has no idea. Yeah, totally, totally. He's called Boom Boom Sally. And Sally Tabby, like, 50 times. This has absolutely happened. I actually think that should happen on panel, because it would be That would be very funny. funny. (laughs) (sighs) But yeah, like, in terms of he knows them really well, I think it caps out somewhere around Cecilia Reyes. And then it's like, from then on, you're really on your own. Last question. Joshua Bruckner writes, Hello, Connor and Spencer. Congrats on 50 episodes of this endlessly entertaining and educational podcast. And on your return, Spencer, the Magneto episode is one of my favorites. My question concerns the arc of Xavier's morality. He's initially presented as the benevolent teacher and leader, but that quickly goes out the window. And modern Charles, post-Ultimate X-Men at the very least, is much more morally gray. He seems to be more morally compromised and, for a lack of a better word, evil now than Magneto, traditionally the villain. Is Charles past redemption have mutant kind and Krakoa outgrown the need for him? What are your thoughts on his complicated legacy and how much the mutants really still need him at all? Regards, Josh. Thought that was a good note to end on because it kind of sums it all up, right? Yeah, real wonderful one. Do you want to go first or should I? You go first. I don't ever want to say anyone is beyond redemption. Same. But they have to do the work necessary in order to get there. And we see pretty often Charles just simply declares the work to have been done. Yes. Rather than... Mission accomplished. (laughs) And, you know, I think, like we discussed, 
there is an available reading of the Mike Carey run that I think answers this question, mm-hmm. which is that as long as he is not willing to do what is necessary, as defined by those he has wronged, to approach real, meaningful, let alone material amends, then he's not going to get there. And that's going to be sort of where his character stays. And there are just going to be people like that. And there are especially going to be very, very powerful people like that. And so we have a lot of storytelling potential in Charles Xavier as he exhibits that behavior and kind of ages into it. That's complicated now by the fact of functional Krakoan immortality. So that's a real question for Charles going forward. He has all of the time literally in the universe to pursue a path of amends and make the people that he's harmed, even just approach the people that he's harmed in circumstances where this is appropriate and figure out from them if there is a way meaningfully of making those amends or if what they want is to never interact with Charles Xavier again, and then he has to respect that. Mm-hmm. As long as he doesn't do that work, then we're stuck. This is going to be a good thing as a bit of storytelling guidance, kind of like going forward with the character. I think that a lot of this is going to be what we get out of Inferno. I think what we're going to understand in Inferno, particularly because the Onslaught stuff is wrapping up before Inferno, is going to be like, who are Charles and Eric now? Are they people we should look to as leaders? Have we moved past them? What should replace them if so? I don't think that Charles is beyond redemption. I think, though, that he has a lot of work to do to make amends to a lot of people, as Spencer was saying. I also think that the most interesting place you can take both Charles and Eric now is to take them out of leadership, which is sort of what was done in the Utopia era and I think was something that really worked. I think that if they are removed, they should not go off and be villains somewhere. They should just be on Krakoa like anyone else and have to deal with the fact that they're not calling the shots. That is where I think he should go next because I think before Charles Xavier can really make amends to anyone, Charles Xavier needs to learn humility. I believe mutant kind has progressed past the need for Charles Xavier. That aspect of the question, I think, is manifested that the dream is gone and we don't need the dream. We can recognize the important role in a dialectical sense that the dream played in getting us to Krakoa and see the dream to the degree we assign it value, valuable for that contribution. But no, Xavierism failed. Xavierism probably robbed people of freedom and dignity. It prevented people from living the lives they could have lived. And in that respect, I think we have to celebrate that Krakoa has ended that era. I think that that really sums it up. Well, Spencer, is there anything else you'd like to say about Charles Xavier before we start to wrap up? Certainly not. I mean, that, that's a dangerous question. Because, uh, yeah, you like, know what? Never mind. I take it so back. Long. I take it yeah. back. I take it back. I take it back. That's just what I usually say. I take it back. No more thoughts. Stop. Nothing else. Why don't you plug anything you want to plug and tell the listeners where to follow you on social media and elsewhere? Reign of Terror, how the 9-11 era destabilized America and produced Trump, which has gotten reviews beyond my wildest dreams and is a project to understand, contextualize, and confront the war on terror, the entire post-9-11 era that's still with us, in stores now. 
You can find me, as Connor is kindly plugged, my Substack newsletter is Forever Wars, foreverwars.substack.com. I have my Twitter and Instagram, and also my Discord server name is Attackerman. And I have lots of stuff upcoming. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, merch store, and Patreon at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. As a reminder, this is the season one finale. Season two will premiere in a couple weeks with the episode on Nathan Christopher Summers, Cable with guest Vishal Gulapali. I am really excited about season two. It is going to feature, hopefully, unobtrusive ads around the character file. As I said at the beginning of the episode, if you would like to never have ads, you can subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier, you will receive an ad-free episode every time the episode goes live. You will also get two secret file bonus episodes each month. I've got a lot of fun stuff planned some guests coming in it's going to be a fun time so check that out if you're feeling the vibes thank you as always for your support we are one year later and i cannot believe how rapidly this thing took off i uh i was listening back to an earlier episode the uh, wolverine episode with jerry duggan and he asked are you still going to be doing this after quarantine because you know, it's so much work. And I said, well, I mean, <laughs> that really depends on whether people are still listening to it. And he said, oh, people will still be listening to it. It's a very good podcast. <laughs> this show continues to exist because of listeners like you. Thank you so much for all of your comments and questions and sweet, kind thoughts. I am really grateful for the fan base that has developed around this podcast. I think it's a really beautiful little community. And I appreciate all of you. So until next time, everyone, when we return for season two of Cerebro, bye. Casper Mattress, she who sleeps. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.